Hi everyone, I'm Ori Freeman. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto's um, Center for Ethics. Thank you for joining our workshop today on trust and the ethics of AI. This workshop aims to address some of the insights that we have gained in this growing field. We critically explore uh, practical and theoretical issues ranging from values and frameworks to carebots, from evaluations of decision support systems to norms in the private sector. We assess the objects of trust in a democratic settings and discuss how scholars can further shift insights from academia to other sectors. The format of the workshop um, will be, uh, the format of our workshop is a talk followed by comments and a discussion. And since our event today is broadcasted live through the center's uh, YouTube page, if you're watching us, please feel free to ask questions through the chat function and I'll make the efforts to ask the questions on your behalf. So last thing before we begin, I wish to thank the Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto's Center for Ethics and Professor Marcus Dabber, the lab and the center's director. I also thank the participants of this workshop, Professor, Professor Esther Kimolen from Tilburg University, Professor Sina Fazelfau from Northwestern University, Professor Justin B. Bidel from Georgia Tech, uh, from Georgia Institute of Technology, Professor Vivek Nalor from University College Dublin, and Professor Judith Simon from Hamburg University, who will be our first speaker for today. Judith Simon is Professor for Ethics in Information Technologies at the Hamburg University. She has many uh, public and academic roles, among them being a member of the German Ethics Council and the Data Ethics Commission of the, of the German Federation government. She serves on numerous editorial, executive, and scientific advisory boards, such as the International Society for Ethics and Information Technology and the International Society for Computing and Philosophy. She is the founding co-editor and member of the advisory board of the journal Big Data and Society. She is also associate editor of Philosophy and Technology Journal, and so much more to add. When it comes to trust and technology, Professor Simone is one of the leading scholars and I'm so happy that she agreed to participate in our workshop today. Thank you, Judith, and the digital, digital floor is uh, yours. Thanks a lot, Ori, for this very kind introduction, uh, which was, you know, quite expansive. Thanks a lot. Um, the short version, you know, was, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be with you and I'm very thankful for this very kind in introduction. Uh, let me share my screen first and then I, um, I'll start my presentation. So can you see my slides? <clears throat> Good, and the sound quality is fine as well, I assume. Otherwise, let me know. Okay, perfect. Um, so since this is the first talk um, of this workshop, I'll start with a bit of a broader introductory kind of uh, talk uh, by asking, can we and should we actually trust AI? And what's this whole thing about trustworthy AI? So in a nutshell, what I want to do is first talk briefly, like why is there such an interest into notions of trust and trustworthiness tied to AI? And then secondly, I will draw on two papers in particular, um, which are quite influential in philosophy. One in ethics, which is from Annette Bayer, and the paper is Trust and Antitrust. And the second from philosophy of science, John Hardwick's The Role of Trust in Knowledge. And I'll see what you can draw from these two very classical papers in trying to understand what's this about trust and trustworthiness in AI. And I'll end with some conclusions. 
I shall know that I uh, note that I'm uh, drawing quite a lot on a joint paper with Gernot Rida and Pak Hang Wong. Um, and I've just gave you the reference because it's joint work and um, actually Gernot is the first author of this paper. So <clears throat> in recent years, there has been a lot of debate on trust and trustworthiness related to artificial intelligence. And just one of these um, uh, documents, which really um, explain why there is such a, a huge interest in tying a notion of trust and trustworthiness to AI in particular, was this publication of the high-level expert group on artificial intelligence, who provided ethics guidelines for trustworthy AI. And what there on the right-hand side, you see a schema uh, representing what uh, trustworthy AI consists of. Um, and basically I have this on the next slide as well, as well. There are four key ethical principles that this document is uh, making reference to. Uh, one is the respect for human autonomy. And the second is prevention of harm. The third is fairness. And the fourth is explicability. And uh, all of those are deemed necessary for AI to be trustworthy. And in my current work, I'm trying to focus a little bit on the latter one, on what is actually the relation between explicability and trust and trustworthiness. I'm not going to dive into that right now in my presentation to stick to time, but if there are questions on that, we can maybe talk about this in the discussion. The reason for my interest is uh, that explicability in this document um, is considered crucial for building and maintaining users' trust in AI systems because um, they need to be able to understand it, to contest it, uh, and this is a very lengthy quote, um, but it, it, it seems to indicate that explicability is quite central for trust. And if that's the case, then of course, trust can't be blind because if trust is blind, you don't need an explanation. So something must be underlying this relation between trust and knowledge, and this is what I'm interested in. So let's now dive a bit more deeply into um, this relation between trust, trustworthiness, and knowledge, and draw on these two chapters, on these two um, papers, which I mentioned before. The two questions that I want to um, approach with you in this talk is actually, the first is, can we trust AI? And this means what actually is trust and who and what can be agents and patients of trust, meaning who can trust and who can be trusted? And can we actually extend the notion of trust towards a machine and towards AI? The second question is, so the first one is more of an ontological question, like who is an agent that can be trust or that can be trusted? The second is when, should we trust artificial intelligence? What are the right conditions for us to be justified in trusting artificial intelligence? So let me start with, as I said, these two drawings on some insights from ethics and philosophy of science. And I'll start with a seminal paper by Annette Bayer um, uh, from ethics. She starts this chapter with a quote by Cicela Bock, um, who writes, whatever matters to human beings, trust is the atmosphere in which it thrives. But she continues quite early on by saying, well, exploitation and conspiracy as much as justice and fellowship thrive better in an atmosphere of trust. And that already indicates a bit of an ambivalence that is tied to this notion of trust because it doesn't seem to be necessarily intrinsically good, but it can also provide conditions for exploitation and conspiracy. And I think this is something we've seen also during the pandemic. If you trust the wrong persons, it's also harmful. And that's something I'm going to focus on in a, in a, in a minute. <clears throat> she also continues in sort of a definition of trust to say trust then is accepted vulnerability to another's possible but not expected ill will or lack of goodwill towards one. So 
if I want to, and what is what is quite seminal about this paper by Annette Bayer that she draws this distinction between trust and reliance. And she says, trust is something more than merely relying on someone. And trust as a rational cost benefit calculation regarding the effectiveness of relying. Um, so, so basically there are pure rational choice accounts of trust and they conceive trust as this rational cost benefit calculation regarding the effectiveness of relying on another person or entity in the completion of a specific task. But Annette Bayer basically says, well, you know, that is merely reliance, but we need something more in order to say this is really trust and not merely relying on something or someone. And this something more for Annette Bayer was this goodwill. And more generally, you can say, in contrast to these pure rational choice accounts in philosophy, you have different types of motivation attributing accounts. And they all agree that trust requires the truster to attribute some motivations to the trustee. And what this exactly is can differ, but it is more than merely this rational cost benefit calculation. And that is sort of like what you can read out of this trust being the accepted vulnerability to another's possible but not expected ill will or lack of goodwill. So for, for Bayer, it is this, this goodwill that she's attributing. So if, you know, just drawing on this very short characterization of this, of this paper by, by Bayer, we can say if we want to characterize trust in general, it usually, we only use the notion of trust in relations of dependence, right? We're depending on somebody. Um, so that's one of the key features of a trust relation. The second is we're talking about trust only when we're not certain, right? In terms of and when I'm trusting someone, I don't know exactly what they will do as I behave, right? Otherwise I would be controlling them. So there must be some level of uncertainty. Otherwise we don't need to trust because we know, right? We, and we are controller, we know. For that reason, because there is this dependence and this uncertainty, trusting makes us vulnerable. Because if we entrust somebody to do something or to take care of something that is dear to us, we're making us, us, ourselves vulnerable by people being not trustworthy. So trust in that sense is reliance plus something extra. Plus, for instance, goodwill, or as John, ha uh, as, as another important article, uh, sorry, um, author in, in the, on trust, uh, Russell Harding wrote encapsulated interest that somebody takes your interests into account, right? Is willing to take care of what you want him to take care. The trust and dependence already indicates that trust is always a relational concept. A trusts B in regards to X. What this means is I may trust my general practitioner in regards to a medical diagnosis, but not to repair my car. So it's hardly that I trust somebody in regards to everything, but I, regard, I trust people in regards to something specific. And even the people who I consider most trustworthy, I'll probably not trust them in regards to everything. And why this is the case, I'll get back to in a, in a bit later. So what we can already say is, Trust seems to describe very different relations and they all have something in common, but there are also a number of differences. Trust between partners is different from a trust between a parent and a child. Trust between strangers, if you're asking somebody for directions, is different from the trust you place in doctors, right? So there are different interpersonal relations and there's something common because we always use the notion of trust to describe it, but there's something different. We may also trust institutions um, such as certain oversight bodies or companies. We may also talk about trust in different abstract, rather abstract entities, science, the politics, the media, right? These can also be they are measured, like whether there's increase or decrease of trust in the media or in politics. And the question that we want to address today is, can we trust technology uh, or can we trust artificial intelligence? <clears throat> 
So what I can already summarize and, and tell you here is, <clears throat> if why do we want to talk about trusting AI and not merely relying on AI? <clears throat> the point being that pure rational choice accounts cannot distinguish between reliance and trust and neither between reliability and trustworthiness. For that reason, if we don't want something extra, why don't we just talk about reliance? In them, in those pure rational choice accounts, trust is reduced to the rational expectation of the performance of action by a per the person or entity being dependent upon. Genuine trust, so uh, following Bayer, in contrast uh, to reliance requires an additional dimension, namely a moral dimension. And uh, accordingly, the concept of trust and trustworthy AI cannot be based on pure rational choice accounts if it intends to distinguish between merely reliable AI and trustworthy AI. The problem is then that current AI systems, and we can discuss whether this will ever be the case, do not exhibit the mental or moral characteristics needed for motivation attributing accounts, right? You know, you can't talk about an AI system being goodwilled, you know, or taking your interests into account. So if you, if you take this as a measure, then currently you can't talk about trust in AI, right? However, what you can do, and what I think is a solution, if you want to have stricter rules, and if you want to have these moral components taken into account, we need to employ a more socio-technical view. Trust in AI as trust in the socio-technical ecosystems of the people and technologies designing, deploying, being responsible for oversight and regulation. If you adopt such a broad understanding of AI as these socio-technical systems, then we may talk about AI and uh, trust in AI and can expand beyond uh, this rational choice expectation uh, characterization of trust. Let me move now to the second paper, um, basically the insights now from philosophy of science. And here again, I'm drawing on one paper, which is quite seminal by John Hardwick, The Role of Trust and Knowledge. And he again also starts with a quote in that, time, in, uh, in that case by Relman, who writes, it seems paradoxical that scientific research in many ways, one of the most questioning and skeptical of human activities should be dependent on personal trust. But the fact is that without trust, the research enterprise could not function. Research is a collegial activity that requires practitioners to trust the integrity of their colleagues. So here we're talking about the role of trust and what the role of trust plays within science, within scientific advancement. Um, so what he's analyzing in this chapter is uh, how does knowledge get generated in science and mathematics and physics? These are the case studies that he is taking a look at. If many people need to collaborate in order um, to produce this knowledge together, and he's basically asking who knows if the expertise is distributed. And this is, I think, a very useful conception if you want to understand this socio-technical view on, uh, on trust in AI. So what, what Hardwick asserts and what's also visible already in this quote is in, in the history of epistemology, philosophy of science, there has been long an, an, an emphasis on this ideal of the autonomous knower. You know, the, the idea was um, that you should be skeptical towards blind trust in authorities and a testimony. And, you know, as tied to the enlightenment idea, you should come up with your own reasons. You should be able to justify your own knowledge claims and you should, shouldn't blindly rely on other authorities. So there was a strong discrepancy between trust and knowledge and knowledge was supposed to be based on evidence and not on trust in other people, right? Now it seems if you look into everyday practice in science, it can't be this rational individualistic knower but rather people seem to rely on each other and otherwise they can't really generate knowledge. So Harbig writes, modern knowers cannot be independent and self-reliant, not even in their own fields of specialization. In most disciplines, those who do not trust cannot know. 
um, those who do not trust cannot have the best evidence for their beliefs. In an important sense, then, trust is often epistemologically even more basic than empirical data or logical arguments. The data and the arguments are available only through trust. If the metaphor of foundation is still useful, the trustworthiness of members of epistemic communities is the ultimate foundation for much of our knowledge. So what he's writing is that scientists, if they want to collaborate and if they want to create novel knowledge, have to trust each other's competence, honesty, and adequate epistemic self-assessment. What this means, the third one, is that you also need to know the limits of your expertise. And you need to signal and say, this is what I'm not an expert there anymore. And there are important conclusions to draw uh, for AI systems in that regard. So what that basically means is, Hardwick is already alerting us to the epistemic and moral components of trust and trustworthiness, because we're talking about a duty to be good at what you're doing, to know what you're doing, to know the limits of what you're doing, but also to be honest about what you're actually uh, doing and achieving. So knowledge and trust are deeply interlinked in research and everyday life, and most of our knowledge is to some degree based upon trust in other people's testimony. Trusting others rather than ourselves may at times be an epistemic duty, because there is distributed expertise and we need to recognize our own limitations. However, our practices of trusting are fallible. We may fall victim to what I call the alpha and the beta error of trust. The alpha error being that we trust somebody, but they end up not being trustworthy. And the revised error is to say, well, we're not, we may not trust somebody, but they would have been trustworthy. And both come with epistemic, moral, and practical harm. If you're trusting somebody who's not trustworthy, you know, in regards to knowledge, you may believe something that's just simply wrong, right? But, but also if you're not trusting somebody who had, could have given you a good advice and would have been right, this is also costing you because you don't learn something you would have learned, right? And of course, if people are constantly being distrusted despite the fact of them being trustworthy, this is also a moral harm because you're not treating them uh, in, in an appropriate way. So the question then is, whom and when should you trust? And the very simple, uh, in, in principle, very simple, but in practice, very hard question is to trust those and only those who are trustworthy. Now, who are those who are trustworthy? If we're just looking back to these two papers by Hardwick and Bayer, but also Jones, then we'd say, well, for Hardwick, trustworthy actors are competent, they are honest, they know, and I would add reliably signal the limits of their competence. For for Jones, also an important scholar on trust, it means they are trust responsive. They are responding to you trusting them. They are, for buyer, it's, it's being goodwilled towards the trust. So, so there is also this relational component. So if you want to ask yourself how to be trustworthy is epistemically, it means be competent, but recognize and signal the limits of your own competence and morally be honest and trust responsive or goodwill. Now, let me come to my conclusions, um, what this means for AI systems. The first conclusion to be drawn out of this very, very brief analysis, of course, of these two accounts of trust, that trust is not beneficial per se, but only if directed at trustworthy actors or systems. And we must always be aware of the alpha and beta error of trust, which are both important, right? If we're talking about AI or let's say automated decision-making systems, there's a problem in trusting systems which are not trustworthy, either because they are not doing what they're supposed to do, the quality doesn't matter, or because they're unfair. But there's also a problem of not trusting them if they could improve decision-making, right? So there, there is really this double fold of what is the appropriate amount of trust in what systems. So for trust in AI, it seems to talk about trust 
In AI, to begin with, we must conceive trust as a socio-technical ecosystem, meaning we're talking about the technology, but also about the people developing it, the people regulating it, deploying it, etc. For this trust not only to be justified, for this trust also to be justified, so not only that we can talk about trust, but it's a good thing to trust, these trust ADM systems, automated decision-making systems, or AI, must be trustworthy. And, um, and they can only be trustworthy as well if they are also conceived as a socio-technical ecosystem, which gives obligations to those developing and, uh, and, um, and using them, basically. So being trustworthy, and I'm taking this um, basically from Hardwick, has first and second order epistemic and moral dimensions, I would say. And I'm drawing, expanding a bit on, 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 on Hardwick here. So epistemically, it means you should be competent and also know the limits of your competence. That means, for instance, for AI systems, they should be accurate, but also display the margins of error, the biases that they are that they that they couldn't get rid of, right? So it's it's both about signaling reliably and honestly what you're what you're good at and how good you're at it, right? But also knowing what the limitations are. If, for instance, you have a data set, I've just at some point talked to a doctor um, who, um, from radiology, and they said. We are, we are over diagnosing uh, in, in, in Europe very often tuberculosis because the training data that we have been using in a certain system was from, from India where tuberculosis was still more often the case. So if the training, you know, you may be important, importing certain types of biases from the training data. And in that case, you need to signal and you need to be aware of that and basically alert people of these signals also when the, when the doctors are using them in practice, just to be very, to give you one very concrete case. Morally, it means you should be honest and goodwill. So it means you're knowing when a decision is merely, and basically for those developing AI system, it means to begin with deciding when a decision is not merely a technical one, but an ethical or political one, and may thus require other expertise or broader participation. For instance, if you want to discuss, make decisions, technical decisions about the appropriate measures for bias detection or the appropriate types of fairness metrics for an automated decision-making system, this is not a purely technical decision. Of course, you need to have technical expertise, but what is the right measure depends on the context. So the last, the last conclusions is, Trustworthy explanations, I would say, um, are part of this reasoning um, are needed for justified trust in AI and ADM systems. So if we don't want to have blind trust, right, and I rightly said that blind trust is not what we're striving for, but, but justified trust. And if you want to have justified trust, you can only trust those who are trustworthy, but then you need to be um, you need to be able to recognize who is trustworthy and who is not. And for that reason, you need explanations. And I could, uh, that would have been another talk to talk about what exactly I mean by explanations, but this is, this is what I will stop here with uh, on that note. The requirements for explainability may differ depending on the system and the application context, right? In certain contexts, you may say, well, you know, it should just work better because there is a bit of a balance to strike. Sometimes you need, especially in machine learning, in order to increase explainability, you may have to give up a bit on, on accuracy. And then there may be contexts in which you basically say, I'm not willing to give up, give up on any explainability, but then you may end up not, not being able to use machine learning possibly, but rather follow a rule-based decision-making, right? So it, it really depends on your reasons for having explainability and your decision about how high it must be to choose the appropriate systems. And trustworthy explanations must be, of course, accurate and adequate. That means they must meet context, task, and actor-specific requirements. Um, so it may be that for advertisement, right, you don't need a lot of 
um, explainability, but accuracy should be fine. Or maybe in the in the medical field, in some fields, you would say, well, even if I don't know whether this system is very good at spotting uh, tumorous um, tissue and towards other tissues, I don't need to explain exactly, but it does it perfectly. Maybe you can say I'm vouching here more for accuracy and less for explainability. But these are decisions to be made. Um, and as I said, so that the, the context may be different. Uh, it may be low or high impact. Um, um, and there are different tasks um, for which, for instance, if somebody needs an explanation um, from the GDPR, they may have personalized explanations that they are needed. So what I'm trying to alert you without going into much detail is that we need explanation for trustworthy um, AI, but they may be very different for different actors. And with this, I hope I stayed within the 21 minutes um, and have some time for discussion. You have, thank you so much, Judith. Um, let me change it to gallery view. So, um, before I go on and ask you a question, does anyone else here on our panel uh, uh, want to go before me, please? Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll Esther, please. If I, if I may, uh, Ori, um, uh, Judith, maybe, can you, I'm just curious, so I'm a little, can you um, elaborate a little bit more on the relation between explicability and trustworthiness? You already alluded on it in the conclusions, um, but maybe you can, can add a little bit more to that because I'm very interested uh, on this topic. Yeah, I know this was super short. I just wanted to, because I wanted to stick to these 21 minutes. And um, so, so basically my reasoning goes as follows, right? I mean, if, if uh, trust is something that is, so, you know, if, if trust depends, in order to be justified, needs to be directed at trustworthiness, explainability is part of what uh, makes you assess whether somebody is trustworthy or not. So it is sort of a precondition in order to assess whether systems have the right type of quality, whether they did the right types of checks, you know, for bias detection, for instance, for fairness, for accuracy, right, for quality, like, you know, I mean, if you, if you recall this, this compass case, it's very famous uh, compass case where, you know, people had to, through basically just analyzing the output, had to reinvestigate how this stuff worked, this was a clear case of too little explanation, right? And basically because you could neither inspect it, you could neither see it, you could not. So we're not even talking about explainability in AI in terms of things being difficult to explain, but the lack of access to proprietary software. But what you basically need is you need to be able to, to assess whether systems are trustworthy. So different types of explanations are needed. They are different, uh, they're different, you know, for, for basically for a system, that is um, that is not based on let's say deep learning but rule based. This is in principle open, right? So, but then it's more a question of whether it's proprietary, whether you have access, whether you have this, the necessary comp competency to understand this. But it's not in principle difficult. For XAI, you may have to balance between you know increasing the explainability, and you may have to pay for that with a, with an amount of accuracy. But let's assume you're using such a system as the compass case was used in order to deny somebody bail or put them into jail. Then I think a state must be able to give reasons um, and give, you know, it's, so give reasons why exactly somebody 
um, why a certain decision was was reached. So I would um, place a lot of burden on explanation for especially the state as an actor or for high impact uh, ADM systems. And in other contexts, you may lower them and may basically say, well, I don't care so much about explainability in that context. It just needs to work well and needs to be accurate. So that is the shifting note. And there's a lot of debate on XAI and what a good explanation amounts to. And what I was trying to say, just you know, to give two examples, if you were denied a credit and under the GDPR, you want to know, you want to have a right of explanation, what you need is basically somebody saying, what should have been otherwise so that I would have given gotten a credit? So this is a counterfactual explanation, which is tied to your individual case. If you want to audit the system and say, this is not systematically discriminating against men or women, then you must have different type of information in order so in order to, to you know to audit the system so explainability is very often used for very different things and what exactly you need is tied to the sector to the impact um to the actor and to the task at hand i hope this sort of like uh, wrapped this up a bit yes thank you so actually i was about to ask you about the the role of explainability um uh in those uh, in assessing the output of the algorithms, but I think you made it uh, quite clear. So thank you for that. Um, okay, so Judith, a lot of thank you for this wonderful talk. And we're going to our second presenter today, which is um, Vivek Nalor. Vivek Nalor is an assistant professor at the School of Computer Science at University College Dublin. His interests are wide and diverse, however, focusing on multi-agent systems and machine ethics. He recently published papers about empathic AI and, and about AI regulation in war, Europe. Um, Vivek is a true polymath, and I think that is often the result of raising questions. Um, today, Vivek will share with us his work titled trusting a carebot towards a framework of asking the right questions. Vivek, thank you for being here and we're all here. Is that visible to everybody? Yeah, okay. Um, thank you Uri for that introduction. It was more than kind of, it was, uh, it was uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm flattered to be called a polymath, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm, I, I want to sort of tone your expectations a little bit. I'm merely a computer scientist. And so in, in the spirit of Judith's talk about signaling your own uh, self-assessment, um, I have to signal that my knowledge or my talk and my thoughts are uh, prejudiced uh, on my experience of creating decision-making systems or at least programs that have to make some kind of decisions based on some trade-offs. Um, so here I'm trying to present some work that we're doing jointly with Harriet Watt, which is, it's not all mine. Um, I'm sort of standing on the shoulders of my generous colleagues. Um, and principally the point that I would like to argue here or is that the current way in which machine ethics implementations are, um, are done are inadequate. And as Judith already mentioned, I'm sorry, Judith, I'm constantly referring back to you. <laughs> Current AI systems do not have an inner phenomenological state or motivational state that can be called good. So the problem is, um, what do we do with current AI? 
current AI that actually exists and affects us. Um, so in this talk, I'm looking at a very specific case of current AI, which is uh, a care bot, a robot. Uh, how do we design a robot such that the social technological system in which it is embedded is trustworthy, right? So we're not saying the robot is inherently completely trustworthy, but how do we design or change the design of this robot such that the, uh, the relations that it has um, are sort of maintained? Um, <clears throat> so to start off with, um, this is this is not new. Demographic shifts are a, occurring in the world. Uh, is sort of yesterday's news. Um, there's a projection that by 2030, one in three Japanese will be above the age of 65. Um, even now, uh, forget about projections. I think it is estimated the number of people worldwide above the age of 65 outnumber the number of children under the age of five. What this means for healthcare is that we have to have some reliance on robots. And these are colloquially called care bots because they perform functions of care that were previously uh, completely handled by humans. The question of course is uh, whether we ought to do this. Could we possibly entrust the task of care to a machine? Um, <clears throat> In the literature, we try to talk of them as not just care bots, but elder care robots. Uh, there are many kinds of elder care robots. Um, contrary to uh, science fiction and movies, robots are still quite um, uh, not general purpose. They're still quite specific. There are telepresence robots, robots that essentially allow the family member to be present with an elderly patient or a family member at a time of the family members choosing. There are monitoring robots that check um, continually the health of a patient, their blood pressure, and so on and so forth, monitor whether they are sleeping well. There are assistive robots, robots that help um, um, elderly patients pick up things, uh, remind them to take a walk, remind them to socialize, and so on and so forth. So all of these robots are individually very different, they have different abilities. What they have in common is that they're interacting with uh, elderly and therefore vulnerable people. What this means then is that they may need to make decisions um, on their own without having time for consultation. Therefore, any decision that they make, um, even relation, in relation to their own functioning, uh, may be ethically charged. Uh, for example, if you have a telepresence robot that allows a family member to always, um, or whenever they wish, uh, check in on an elderly patient, um, the elderly patient or family member's privacy rights are brought into sort of focus. What if they don't want to be seen? What if they're socializing with other elderly people who then don't want to be seen? So um, wh whose privacy is important, whose well-being? Uh, and whose autonomy. Uh, so these are the kind of questions that arise when we introduce systems of these sort into uh, social technical settings. So from an implementer's perspective, the question becomes, what should be the machine's goal 
and what should be our goal. Um, thankfully, Judith has um, examined this, this notion of trust versus reliance uh, quite um, uh, exhaustively, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, uh, so I can, I can skip over this. Essentially, all I want to say is that reliance from a computer scientist's perspective is when I'm looking at the past. Whereas trust for me as a computer scientist is when I'm looking at an action that may be performed in the future. So what that means is that assume there is competence, I know that I'm vulnerable, are your goals the same as mine in doing this action? So um, my viewpoint therefore is that when I want to make a trustworthy robot, it is not that I can make a predictable robot. Okay? It is I can make a predictable robot when it is interacting with people. And depending on who it is interacting with, what can I say about the robot's decisions? <clears throat> so the way um, computer scientists have typically uh, addressed this, these questions is uh, sadly not by becoming better philosophers, but by coming up with what I like to call whetstones. Um, this is the scenario. If my machine successfully presents a solution, which is acceptable to other ethicists or other uh, uh, philosophers, then it is doing some kind of reasoning morally. Okay. And now um, the, uh, the way you achieve this, either through machine learning or through rule-based systems or inductive uh, uh, case-based reasoning uh, is sort of irrelevant to the, to the issue. The, I mean, that's a sort of a very engineering or a computer science question, which one is more efficient? We don't really care about that. The question is, does the robot or the machine take the ethical decision when confronted with a dilemma? And just to give you sort of a, a, a really bird's eye view about of how these are implemented in machines, uh, the big three are deontological ethics, utilitarian ethics, and, and moral particularism. Um, deontological ethics from a computer science point of view is the easiest to implement. Um, it's just rule-based systems. You enter enough number of rules. Uh, all we need to check is that the rules don't contradict each other. Uh, and then we are guaranteed ethical behavior. If the rules ensure ethical behavior, then the machine is ethical. Now this, as any scientist person stops his salt, his or her salt knows that this works well only in very small closed systems. Uh, in the real world, rules do not achieve everything uh, that we want them to achieve. Utilitarian ethics are again, fairly easy to implement in existing technologies, which essentially uh, boils down to assigning a value, some utility value to a reaction and consequence, and then performing a function, a summing up of who gains what and which is the best, which action gives you the best utility. Now, the problem of course is that uh, in, an, in, in a world such as a healthcare system, the complete utility of everybody who will possibly interact in that world is impossible to create reliably. Um, <clears throat> moral particularism is uh, a, a slightly more sort of a case-based reasoning where we 
present the machine with multiple cases and expect it to sort of induce a general rule, which also has space for exceptions. Um, and this seems like a, on the face of it, like a nice uh, solution. So something between the deontological and, and the utilitarian extremes. But the problem is at this point, we guarantee nothing. And as soon as that happens, um, we don't want to put a machine in that position where we can't guarantee it's okay. So here is where we start with, this is what we propose. Uh, instead of using the big three, um, what we'd like to move away uh, from uh, and to move towards is give some primacy to the ethics of care. Um, these are very closely related to clinical ethics. And the reason I bring that up is that um, given that these robots are functioning in a healthcare scenario, uh, the closer their ethical uh, framework is to clinical ethics, the better it is because we've already, uh, society has already had quite a bit of discussion about what exactly we want in a clinical setting. Um, <clears throat> so the problem is how do you make a robot care? Uh, and the answer is that we, uh, create relationships. We come up with a notion of relationships for the robot. And the relationships are the primary lens for the robot to decide what course of action is next. <clears throat> so essentially, we have a, a framework map. It's a grand word for essentially just four broad, four broad questions. Um, what are the relationships that this particular robot is a part of? Who are the stakeholders? Who depend on the robot and for what? How does a robot come to know of the stakeholders' preferences with regard to each relationship? And what actions are needed by the robot to preserve each relationship? And finally, this is probably where the explicability and the explainability comes in. How does the robot communicate with its stakeholders about what it is going to do? So if you can answer all of these questions satisfactorily, and by satisfactorily, I mean satisfactory, uh, such that the robot's responses are satisfactory to all the stakeholders, then you have a framework in which this robot or this situation where this robot may be trusted. So let's, let's look at uh, uh, a, a scenario that is fairly common in, in assisted living facilities. Um, <clears throat> the most common feeling that's associated with uh, being in a, uh, in a facility is the feeling of loneliness. And telepresence robots help to alleviate this. Uh, they do this by allowing virtual presence of family members. And this enables um, autonomy for the family members in the sense that they can decide whenever they want to be with their uh, parent or grandparent, they can be there. They don't have to travel physically, which might be difficult. Um, of course, the problem of, uh, which comes up very quickly is what is the dividing line between the primacy we give to privacy versus how much uh, autonomy we give to the family? If the uh, elderly person is specifically in a room where, uh, where they're socializing or with 
or they're in the bedroom and they don't want to be seen and the family member calls, should the robot turn on its video, turn on its camera? Um, now, recall all of this is sort of ending up with the robot merely making a decision about, um, should I turn the video on or off? But it is still an ethically charged situation and the robot has to now decide what to do and communicate what it is doing and why. <clears throat> so let's take that scenario of, of a telepresence robot and say, okay, what are the possible answers here? Um, the possible answers are, well, it's the first relationship that the robot is part of is its principal cared for patient. And then uh, the family, that it is responsible to. Um, the caregiver or the physician of the cared for patient and the wider set of other patients that are present in, assisted, in the assisted living facility. So how does the robot come to know of the stakeholders' preferences? Now, the current state of the art is that it's typically configured either by the designer or the caregiver. How do our decisions made? It's embedded via design. We cannot change this once the robot is already present in the clinical setting or the healthcare setting. And the preferences may be configured by the actual person who's present in the healthcare facility. What actions are needed to preserve these relationships? Possible answers, um, one of the actions that the robot needs to do, it is a telepresence robot after all, is that it must enable audio or video calls. While it's doing that, it needs to ensure the privacy, it needs to enable the autonomy of uh, the privacy of the patient, the autonomy of the family, the autonomy of the caregiver, who may have a more urgent requirement to view what the patient is up to. And of course, there is the privacy of the wider set of patients that this patient is cohabiting with. And how does the robot communicate its intentions? So far, the answers are either a voice-based interface or a screen-based interface, or a combination of the two. Um, <clears throat> that's just one of the scenarios that um, a telegram, uh, healthcare robot is expected to deal with. There are other scenarios such as assistive robots, and then the problems that emerge are slightly different. Um, the, the conflict is between autonomy versus well-being. Uh, the robot essentially knows that the user's in the bathroom, uh, been in the bathroom for more than 10 minutes, should it go inside. Um, if it goes inside, it's explicitly violating a command given by uh, the elderly person to leave them alone in the toilet. But if it doesn't, their well-being could be put at risk. So the point that I want to make here is that A, the questions that we talked about are not sufficient, but all of them are essential. So it's a sort of a minimal set criteria. And yet they don't give you any answers. There are many, many possible answers. So the intent 
of that framework, the relationship questions framework, is not to provide a definitive guide for a machine. They set, they create a minimal set of questions that all robot designers, healthcare robot designers, need to answer. Um, healthcare providers need to answer, families need to answer. And then based on the answers that are given, you can decide whether this particular robot is suitable or not. So it is not the robot that is trustworthy. It is the reactions of the robot in the situation that makes the healthcare facility trustworthy. <clears throat> so I hope, um, I hope that sort of gives you uh, some idea of what we're kind of looking at in terms of creating a system where an AI is embedded and trusting that system. Thank you. I hope um, I do not overshoot my time. I think I'm just about to done. Thank you so much, Vivek. Um, that was a quite insightful in, in, in various ways. Um, uh, again, I'll, I'll let our panel, if they uh, would like to raise questions first, uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll highlight something that I would like to, to hear what you think of. Okay, so here's the thing. Beyond your, your general argument, which I really like, um, you spoke of like philosophical approaches to ethical uh, AI, and then you, you, you mentioned like the ethics of care and, and clinical ethics and, and things like that. But, but then you a little bit surprised me, and, and I'll in a minute say exactly why. Um, and I think through this surprise, we can raise like the interdisciplinarity or different languages that, that we use when we discuss ethics of AI. There was one slide that, that said that. Uh, we can communicate the intentions or the robots can communicate uh, their intentions. And to me, it seems that intentions somehow kind of implies that there's a moral agency behind the robot. So I'd like you to, to say what you think about the topic or, or how do you see intentions? Um, like I said, I think uh, this is where the, the signaling of the of my own limitations, and of course, a bit of the the problem of vocabulary that you identified. Right? So for for me, an intent is a robot typically generates several plans, and then it selects a plan, right, of actions. Because uh, unlike again, uh, babies and human beings that can sort of automatically move, currently robots still try and generate act plans for what each part of its body is going to do such that it achieves its goal. Right? So when it's got a plan um, that it has selected or it is in the process of selection, those are its, its intentions to me. Right? That is what it is planning to execute. When it executes, it becomes an action. So it is not in, in any uh, uh, moral sense an intention, but it is, it is in, the, in, in the sense of in the instant before it did it, did the robot know what it was going to do? Yes, it did. And if we can get it to communicate that, it has signaled its intent. Thank you. Yeah, it's some kind of uh, technological intentions, like not, uh, not like the human intention. 
if I understand you correctly, which is which makes sense. Uh, this kind of a distinction. Um, Judith, please. Yeah, so maybe maybe just one follow up because of course I know there's there's always a bit of an issue in in different notions of the same terms in computer science and philosophy and you know quite often in in, in computer science also in multi agent systems people will talk about the BDI structure beliefs desires and intentions and then you know psychologists would say and philosophers oh my god sake this is not has nothing to do with intentions so I think as long as people are clearly communicating what they mean by that, there is less of confusion about this. But of course, whenever these these words are, are used, also, as you just said, and then the computer knows, right? And the philosopher again would say, of course, he doesn't know, right? I mean, he, it, it doesn't know, right, to begin with. So, but but th th that's not the point. I mean, it's really, I think, I think it's totally, for me at least, it's fine that to use the languages that we're using in our disciplines, but at least to acknowledge that this raises certain expectations also in the public, right? This whole debate, because you rightly said in our pre-meeting that there are lots of discussions in the media and in the public about sentiment AI and AI having, you know, intentions and feelings and whatnot, while this is basically just statistics. So, so I think, you know, I think just every once in a while, also from a computer science perspective, just alerting to that is, is super helpful. I know you're doing this anyway. So it was just an observation. But my question was, um, you raised all these questions, but do you have a strategy in how to answer them in a case-based system? So if you need to decide about how exactly, you know, this negotiation should, who should overrule? Because in the end, of course, you need to decide and implement who should overrule whom and what decision-making process. But what is your design process in figuring out how to do this, right? I mean, are, are you going for focus groups in which you're discussing this with caregivers and patients or really much more practical speaking? How do you plan to resolve these issues which, which are of course very difficult to resolve? Yeah, so I, I, I think um, uh, our current strategy, let me say before, if, before it fails, uh, is to have um, interviews and focus groups with caregivers. Um, and, and families who have uh, members of their family in assisted living facilities and, of course, people in assisted living facilities, right? What are their views? And you might call it crowdsourcing in, 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 a, in a sort of a, uh, you might, yeah, uh, and, and in, in an abstract sense, you are right. Uh, but I think uh, for specific instances, given that they are the main stakeholders, um, my view on what the correct action should be carry, carries less weight as opposed to the patient. And, and my current thinking is that at some point, I mean, you can represent these relationships as graphs, right? And graphs with certain um, preferences about each node having a certain preference about which action is the best action to take. Um, and eventually, you're right, it will boil down to in a, a case description and then um, the computer inside the robot will calculate which node has the highest value and, and then go with that. The, the hope is that the graph in some way reflects the, the main stakeholders' views. Uh, and the hope is that because it is transparent with regard to that, if you don't agree with it, you may or may not have the choice to not participate in that setting but at least you know uh, that that is what it's going to do. 
So, I mean, there is a vulnerability, but it's not the vulnerability of, of uncertainty. It is the vulnerability of, well, I mean, in society, in sometimes we're just helpless. <clears throat> Vivek, we have a question for you from the YouTube chat. And this is a reminder for our uh, viewers online that they can pose questions uh, that using the chat function and, and I'll try to pass it on to the speakers. So there's, there's, um, the question is, is, what are your thoughts about the proposed solutions uh, that focus on the need for increased elder care as within RoboCare and nursing homes um, model of care versus the alternatives which are focused on redesigning community collaborations for support. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, the, the human in me uh, looks at the tenets of good care, right? And, and one of the tenets of good care is that human-to-human -human contact is vitally important. And we should not be looking at care as a one-way interaction where we say, here, I provide care to you. Um, the act of caring gives value to me as well. And while that is the ideal situation, um, I mean, the, given the context that I sort of started with, we may not have a choice. Um, if, if the number of elderly are just too many, then, then the robot will have to come to the rescue or risk sort of halfway house is sort of even worse solution, right? I mean, you may ideally want a community that cares, or you may want a healthcare facility that has robots that care, but in the middle where there's nothing, the robot doesn't really care about, hasn't been taught to care about care, and lots of elderly people have no care, right? And that's clearly worse. So, so the mean is not necessarily always good. Oh, thank you so much. So um, I hope this answers the question. And I think we'll move to our next presenter. So thank you so much again, Vivek. And let me introduce, I'm happy that Justin B. Biddle joined us. Justin is an associate professor in the School of Public Policy at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He researches um, the role of values in science, technology, and medicine, intellectual property rights, ethics of emerging technologies, and currently focusing on AI and public uh, policymaking. Not long ago, Justin published an insightful paper together with others that give a global overview of what's going on in regard to policy and, and AI ethics in different sectors. I'll add that um, I first learned about his work in 2016 or 2017, when I, as a student, came across his papers on uh, inductive risk and values in science. So it's a true cornerstone of my own academic education. Um, so I'm happy a few years later to, to have the privilege and uh, uh, collaborate uh, uh, here as a colleague. Justin, thank you so much for being here and uh, we'll hear your talk titled Organizational Perspectives on Trust and Values in AI. Okay, thank you. Um, can I share, can I give, can I share my screen? Yeah, yeah, or... you will see if the co-host uh... The co-host title. Okay, all right. So, um, does that look okay? It does, yes. Okay, 
so first of all, um, apologies for showing up late. I have no excuse except for the, apparently I can't do basic arithmetic and figure out what time it is on the East Coast when I'm in Germany. Um, so I do sincerely apologize for my stupidity there. Um, so <laughs> with that auspicious start, um, let me give a little bit of a background um, on, on, on this project. So, um, for some time, as Ori mentioned, I've been interested in sort of a couple of um, uh, different areas of the philosophy of science. One is work on um, the role of value judgments in science and technology. And recently I've been focused on um, um, value judgments in, in AI systems, and also really interested in social epistemology and the social dimensions of, of scientific uh, knowledge and, and, and technology as well. Um, so this is a project where I'm really trying to sort of understand some of the connections between, um, between those two areas. And one of the strategies I'm sort of taking um, to help out with this is to kind of delve into a literature that's new for me at least um, in organization theory and the sociology of organizations. Um, so the hope is to sort of identify some um, uh, conceptual um, tools that can help us understand um, the ways in which particular organizational features impact the kinds of values that become embedded in the scientific and technological systems produced by those organizations. Um, so that's sort of the, um, uh, the big picture project here. Um, So the outline um, for my talk, I'll take a minute to um, um, just provide a little bit of an introduction um, and kind of situating the project and a bit of a rationale for it. Um, the case that I'm using is a, this one that's by this point sort of very well trodden and um, much discussed um, on um, predictive policing and sentencing systems. Um, I'm not gonna say a lot um, about this case that's new, but I think it's a, a kind of illustrative case um, to, um, uh, to help to unpack um, some of the ways in which um, kind of organizational perspectives can be can be useful in this area. Um, I'll talk very briefly um, about a conceptual framework for theorizing the impacts of organizational features on values in science and technology, um, saying a bit about organizational aims and strategies, um, organizational culture, which I'll just kind of raise and then and then and then leave um, because it's not super relevant to this story but then organizational structure and then i'll come back to the predictive policing and sentencing example um, to look at it from an organizational perspective and the hope is that this this kind of illustrates um, again some of the philosophical work um, that um, organizational perspectives can do in this area and in particular i want to argue that it helps to highlight a phenomenon that I think is worth highlighting, which I'm calling um, the phenomenon of organizationally misaligned data reuse. Um, so I'll say a bit about that and its implications for trustworthy AI. So that's where we're headed. Um, so a bit of background, scientific and technological research is not value neutral. It reflects and embeds values, including ethical values. Um, this is especially clear in the case of AI systems. This is well known in philosophical literatures on the role of values in science and technology. Um, it's well known in STS communities, and it's also well known now in relevant technical 
um, communities. So um, a recent document by the IEEE, their ethically aligned design um, states that uh, technology is not neutral. Um, artificial and intelligent systems embody values and biases that can influence important social processes like voting, policing, uh, and banking. And to ensure that um, autonomous and intelligent systems benefit humanity, research and design must be underpinned by ethical and legal norms. And as soon as we start talking about um, ethical norms, a number of questions arise. Um, including um, whose norms or values, which values should be embedded in these systems, what role um, should they play. And when we're talking about recommendations or analyses of values, we can ask what level um, is what, 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 should, what level should be our focus. Um, a number of the philosophers writing about the role of values in science and technology have focused on the the level of the individual researcher. So Heather Douglas and her work, Matt Brown and his work, I put Kevin Elliott in here as well. Um, they're really focused on thinking about how individual researchers might think about the values that they have and the ways in which um, um, those values can be managed and how they might impact um, the research and technological systems that they produce. Um, there are also social approaches um, to um, questions of, of values. And I'm going to distinguish between what I'm calling a, a macro societal level social approach and a more inter intermediate organizational approach. Um, if you look at, say, Phil Murawski's work, um, it's, it's, his work is complicated and there's a lot going on in it. But one sort of, I guess, perhaps overly simplistic way to look at it is to look at it as um, an examination of the impact of neoliberal ideology on science. So you're talking about a very kind of high level macro societal um, uh, perspective, um, looking at the ways in which values in this case, ideological considerations um, uh, can impact science. Um, similarly, you look at work on say the impact of pat patriarchy on science or the impact of um, white supremacy on science. You're talking about very kind of high level macro societal ideolo ideologies and their impacts on science. Um, the kind of perspective that I'm taking is a sort of mid-level organizational approach, um, kind of in between the macro societal and the individual, namely the, the organizational, which would focus on things like the research firm um, university lab um, and, and, and so on. The philosopher of science who I think comes closest to this sort of mid-level approach is Helen Longineau. She's well known for arguing that scientific communities um, should, must satisfy four norms um, in order to be, uh, to produce work that is objective or, or, or uh, to, to, to produce scientific knowledge. Um, but the kind of, the, the unit of focus here is the community. And I think there's a lot of vagueness um, around this concept. It's kind of hard to tell so where one community ends and where another begins. And I think that that's kind of important to do in, in, in some circumstances. So um, I've learned a ton from, from, from Helen Longineau. And, and, uh, but I think um, organizational perspectives can help to refine this, this notion of, of, of community um, here, I think. Um, I haven't said anything about trust so far 
um, which um, I should do given the topic. Um, there's a lot that there's lots of different conceptions of, of trust and trustworthiness. Um, and um, many of you on this call probably are, are, are more familiar with them than I am. Um, the, the approach to trustworthiness that I am gonna use here is Torsten Billholt's conception of, of trustworthiness where um, uh, trustworthiness requires a harmonization or coordination of the distribution of epistemic risks. Um, so if we think about a research community or we could extend his work to think about um, a technological, so the production of a technical system, there are um, many different individuals and perhaps offices and groups that are involved, um, many of which are making different decisions about how to manage epistemic risks, how to manage um, inductive risks. Um, and if the overall research or technological um, system is to be uh, trustworthy, we need, as Quill Kukla says, some way of making perspicuous which interests are at play and how they're affecting research um, or technology. Um, and they need to be sort of harmonized given um, the epistemic aims of the project. And so this is the, um, this is the conception of trustworthiness that I'll be, um, that I'll be relying on here. Um, I think it's useful for this, um, for this project. Um, I'm not going to say too much about the um, the rationale for this for these organizational perspectives, but um, I do want to make clear that I consider this perspective to be a necessary supplement to individual level and macro societal level discussions. This is not to take anything away from those other um, from those other perspectives. Um, this is, I think, a supplement to them. Again, I think um, they can help to make visible phenomena that might otherwise be difficult to see. Um, this phenomenon of organizationally misaligned data reuse. Um, and I think that they can be helpful um, to identify instances of untrustworthy AI, which I'll get to. All right, um, so I'm not gonna say um, much about um, uh, policing or, or criminal prediction um, systems right now, um, just to highlight them as a, as a case that I'll be dealing with. In particular, I mean, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of concerns about the trustworthiness um, of these systems, and in particular concerns about the trustworthiness of these systems um, because of the data that are used and decisions that are decisions about the data that are used to train these systems. One um, interesting and um, pretty frightening um, study on this topic is by Rashida Richardson, Jason Schultz, and Kate Crawford, who um, analyzed a number of different jurisdictions in the United States that developed, um, in this case, predictive policing systems and uh, examined that the, the data that appeared to be used to produce these systems. Um, they described their project um, as follows. In our research, we analyzed 13 jurisdictions that have used or developed predictive policing tools while under government commission investigations or federal court monitored settlements, consent decrees, or memoranda of agreements stemming from corrupt, racially biased, or otherwise illegal policing practices. In particular, we examine the link between unlawful and uh, biased police practices and the data available to train or implement these systems. So they really focus on three jurisdictions, Chicago, New Orleans, and Maricopa County, and they have sort of different, different levels of, of evidence suggesting that 
um, in these jurisdictions, um, data sets that were rife with um, uh, with racial biases were used to um, uh, to produce um, uh, predictive policing systems. Um, and so this is um, an example, if they're right, of, of bias arrest data. Right? And most of this stuff is based on data, arrest data, um, uh, leading to biased predictions. All right. Um, I want to say a little bit about the organizational features that impact values that I um, um, that I want to highlight, and then I'm going to come back to this um, to this example and and try to show what I think these this kind of organizational perspective can can help us with. Um, again, organizational aims and strategies. I'll say a bit about organizational culture, but um, not much, and then organizational structure. Um, so, organizational aims and strategies. Um, there are lots of different organizational aims, of course. Um, these include financial profit, in the case of for-profit firms, provision of public services, in the case of government agencies, fostering social or political change, in the case of NGOs, and many others. Um, there are also different strategies that can be employed to, employed to achieve the same aims. So we can think about, say, a social media company that has the aim of financial profit that adopts the strategy of widespread data collection and monetization versus some other social media company that has the same aim but adopts a different strategy, one that you know, allows users to pay subscription fees and opt out of that data collection or what have you, right? Um, different strategy, there can be different strategies for achieving similar aims, but the aims and strategies adopted will impact the values embedded in those systems. So you think about how those different strategies might impact the ways in which privacy considerations are prioritized, for example, right? Um, uh, and those familiar with the um, work in values and science on the aims approach, um, examining the connections between aims of research and values embedded in, uh, in research, we'll see a connection um, here. Um, there's a lot of discussion in org theory about organizational culture, um, where this means the norms, values, habits, and assumptions that operate in an organization. Um, these, this impacts which behaviors are incentivized and which are sanctioned, um, who's included in decision-making and relations of power between them. Um, there's a huge discussion about this in, in the sociology of organizations attempting to identify which characteristics of organizations are really kind of um, establishing of a culture uh, and so on. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that we could talk about here, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move on to organizational structure, which, um, as I'm using this term, concerns the decision-making processes of an organization, including both formal and informal processes, um, including the relations that hold between different intra-organizational entities, such as offices and individuals. So organizational structure gets at questions about what kinds of processes do organizations use to make decisions? Um, what sorts of divisions of labor do you find within these organizations? Um, and, and, and so on. And how an organization is structured affects how epistemic risks are managed and how value judgments are navigated. There's some interesting discussions in both science and technology policy and also some in philosophy of science about the impact of division of labor on how values are managed and also certain epistemic um, 
uh, outcomes. A lot of research suggesting that um, sort of organizations that have a high degree of division of labor can do research more efficiently, but that also raises the risk of certain kinds of pathogenic behaviors like research misconduct and the lack of coordination in, um, in the management of epistemic risks. Um, so stuff about division of labor is something I'm gonna come back to here in a second. Okay, so, um, so what's, what's, what's the upshot here? So let's come back to um, this um, AI technologies sort of related to predictive policing um, or uh, recidivism prediction or other others used um, in this area. Um, when we think about this from an organizational perspective, how are these how are these systems produced? Who's involved? Um, well, these are produced by AI R and D teams that have particular aims, cultures, and structures. Um, and there's some variation here. Some of these are for-profit companies um, that are producing these. In some cases, they're sort of university labs, nonprofit university labs um, that are producing these. And so I don't mean to suggest that these are all the same kinds of organizations. There are some differences, but there are also some similarities. And in particular, um, most of the AI R&D teams who are, who are designing these systems share the aim of empirical accuracy, right? They wanna produce systems that are predictively accurate, I would say. Um, okay, well, so how do they produce these systems? Well, these are machine learning systems that are produced on the basis of training data. And where do they get these this training data? Well, they get them from local police departments that have their own aims, cultures, and structures that are really, I would say radically different from those of the AI R&D team. Um, so in the previous slide, when I'm talking about division of labor, I was, you know, there's a lot of discussions about sort of intra-organizational division of labor, say divisions between offices or researchers within the same organization. Here we have an inter-organizational division of labor. We've got just different organizations involved. Um, in the production of these systems. And they're involved in a way that um, I think um, displays what I'm calling organizationally misaligned data reuse, where this is reuse of data by an organization O2 for AIM A2, in case data was produced by O1 that does not share that same AIM. In particular, what I wanna suggest is that while the AI R&D teams that are producing these systems care about or aim at empirical accuracy, local police departments don't, at least when it comes to data about arrest. And if we think about, so what does it mean for arrest data to be accurate or what does it mean to aim at arrest data that's accurate? Well, in that case, you're aiming to minimize false positives and false negatives, right? You wanna, you wanna, <laughs> arrest only people who have committed crimes for those crimes, and you don't want to fail to arrest people who have committed crimes, right? That's what it means to, to aim at empirical accuracy with respect to arrest data. And police departments just aren't in the business of doing that, even independently of issues surrounding systemic racism. 
Um, so I'm coming close to the end of my time here. So I want to uh, I want to wrap things up. Um, but maybe we can come come back to some of these issues and the questions. So, what are the implications for trustworthy AI? Um, if AI R&D teams do not adequately curate data they receive from police departments, then the systems they produce will be untrustworthy for particular purposes. Um, the systems will involve a lack of coordination of the distribution of epistemic risks. I think in the previous example, you have pretty clear cases of a lack of coordination of the distribution of epistemic risks, where you have police departments that are producing arrest data, um, where in some cases they might not even be so aiming at accuracy uh, and having that data then be used as training data for systems that are supposed to be empirically accurate. So there are certainly concerns here um, about untrustworthiness. Um, but this phenomenon of organizationally misaligned data reuse is widespread and it's not necessarily problematic. I mean, data is reused all the time and organizationally misaligned data reuse is super widespread, right? Think about, I don't know, um, so some ancient Roman government that you know produced data for some purpose and then that's reused by contemporary historians for some completely different purpose, right? That's organizationally misaligned data reuse, but it's not necessarily problematic assuming that the historians do their job and take into account the context and, and so on and so forth. So under what conditions is organizationally misaligned data reuse problematic. Um, I don't, this is something I'm just really starting to think about, so I don't have a full account, but I think that there are a couple of questions that can at least help to shed light on, 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 on this. Right? First, does the organization which originally collects the data have as an organizational aim, the collection of accurate data? I don't think the police departments do, at least with respect to arrest data. And I said that this was independent of issues about systemic racism. So, I mean, just as an example, think about a police department that is not racist, that has very well-intentioned police officers that regularly do things like, you know, they come across a kid who's committed a crime and they decide not to arrest the kid because they don't want to wrap them up in the criminal justice system. They use their discretion, which they're allowed to do to refrain from making an arrest when the crime was committed, right? Well, that's a false negative, right? And if they do that regularly, then they're tolerating false negatives. They're not aiming at empirical accuracy with respect to arrest data. They shouldn't be, arguably, right? That's not what they're there for. Um, secondly, does the organization that collects this data have as an organizational aim the collection of data in the first place? You might think that police departments don't, you might think that they're, they have as an organizational aim to like, arrest people or not arrest people, but they aren't data collection entities. That's not their, that's not, that's not their organizational aim. Right? That's not what they're there for. Data is produced, but sort of secondarily and coincidentally. <laughs> Contrast these cases with other cases of, de, of, of data reuse, say reuse of census data, in the case of census data, you have an organization like the Census Bureau that's there to collect data. That's a part of their organizational aim and to collect accurate data. That's part of what they're there for. And that's, that's, that's a part of their organizational aim. Arguably, that's not the case with police departments. And then finally, 
does O1, which collects the data, have organizational aims that are all consistent with those of the reusing organization? Or um, are there some organizational aims that are actually inconsistent with those of the reusing organization in particular? Like in this case, are do, do police departments have some organizational aims that would be inconsistent with um, the aim of collecting accurate data? kind of think that that might be the case, but um, but I can leave that for the discussion period. In any case, I've said that this is not a full account, um, um, but I think that if any of these answers, um, or, or if any of these questions um, are answered in the negative, then that's at least suggestive um, that there's that um, uh, um, we might be dealing with cases of untrustworthy um, AI here. All right, I'm over time with that. I will stop, thank you. That was excellent. Thank you so much for this, Justin. Um, I have a question to raise, uh, but let's uh, first uh, see if, uh, if any one of us uh, wants the... Okay, so I'll go, I'll go first. So first of all, thank you so much. I, I really like the idea of organizationally uh, misaligned data and Actually, uh, it's also misaligned uh, 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 aims, right? So it's different, uh, different. And what I would like to ask is similar to the way that experts sometimes disagree, right? Um, is it necessarily that we'll have like different organizations with the same aims or, or, or the same? Uh, like agreeing upon the data, uh, just, just I, I don't know, I'm, I'm asking for what you think of that. Uh, sorry, can you, can you, can you, I guess, repeat that? It's not yeah, yeah. clear to me. 100%. So um, I began saying that I really like the, 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 the notion of organizational, uh, organizationally misaligned data. And what I'm saying is that similar to the way that experts sometimes uh, uh, disagree between them between themselves. Um, is it possible to have like different organizations who disagree both on the aims and about uh, uh, the data? Uh, will that cause uh, untrustworthy AI, or is it possible to have this uh, within a trustworthy AI? Yeah. Um, so I mean, let me say a little bit about my my motivation here, and then um, hopefully I can. Um, get to your question, but I mean, so I, you know, in lots of discussions of, of machine learning, um, I sort of get the impression that um, there are a lot of groups that just think that uh, the more data, the better, right? And so we have um, all of this data out there, right? Collected by, well, whomever and for whatever purposes, but we've got tons of data. And now we have these machine learning tools that allow us to do something with this data. Right? And um, the, I think it's really important to ask, I mean, where the data comes from, right? um, but also I think that looking at the organizational context of the production of data, that is which organizations were producing the data and for what purposes, what were their aims in producing the data, um, that can shed light on, um, well, how the data might need to be curated or what kinds of steps need to be taken 
in order for that data to be used in ways that are trustworthy. Right. Um, so do, uh, I'm not sure if that's starting to get at your question, Ori, but. No, that's 100%. I think that uh, that's, uh, answers it. Um, let's see, I wanna, we have another question. Um, uh, first of all, can you, can you end the shared screen so we can see yourself? That's, yeah, sorry. No, that's right. Uh, and stop share. Thank you. So, um, uh, Sina, please. Uh, yes, thanks, Justin. I, I, I really like this organizational perspective and uh, thinking about it in relation to the provenance of data. So, uh, one interesting thing about uh, the reuse of data uh, that your talk made me think of is whether there are kind of obligations on uh, that arise because of uh, reuse of data by a variety of organizations and whether this poses an, uh, kind of an obligation on the organization that is originally curating this or gathering this data. So as an example, like take Census Bureau that is connect, uh, collecting all this data and in order to make sure that the data is useful, but also respects people's privacy, they implemented differential privacy practices. But in doing so, they made the data a little bit less accurate for certain purposes. And research shows that downstream users of this can uh, have uh, unintended negative consequences for how we draw uh, kind of for redistricting but kind of uh, changing the voting district. So it might undermine some of our democratic aims. It might have, uh, it does have uh, negative unintended aims for with respect to fairness for how we allocate funding to different schools because it doesn't get the demographic uh, 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 composition of different districts, right? Uh, so in this sense, uh, given that those other like school districts and uh, redistricting in, uh, I don't know, parliament or wherever it is, or uh, in the Senate, uh, they're not in charge of collecting this data and they rely on the census borough. What type of obligations do you think the census borough faces here? Uh, should it consider all of these like democratic aims that are downstream uh, fairness aims and so on? Yeah, so that's a big question. Um, I mean, I, so I guess I, I've been thinking, I mean, it's a really good question and something I need to think about more. I've been thinking of this primarily in terms of the obligation of the reusing organization, right? Um, and I do think there that there are really significant obligations to, um, to do the kind of curation that is necessary to, to, to get um, trustworthy research. Um, and I haven't really thought a lot about the obligations of the producing organization um, I mean, I guess my, my initial thought is that, yeah, you're, I think you're right that they probably do to the extent that they can anticipate the, the ways in which that the data, the ways in which the data will be reused. And I think that there are significant limitations on that, on, on organizations ability to do that, right? I mean, for example, I don't think police departments several years ago would have, well, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, at least at some point, I don't think that they would have anticipated that there would be these complex, you know, machine learning tools being based on the data that they're used to, um, uh, that they that they were producing, right? Um, so um, the extent of their obligations would depend on, on on their ability to know what kinds of uses there are. Um, but it's a great question and one that I should think about more. Yeah, thanks.
Um, Vivek, would you please, uh, would, would you want to ask that? Well, no, it's, it's not a question. It's more of a sort of a, 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 an addendum to Sina's uh, question. In, in, in India, there used to be a law that prohibited the use of census data in any court of law uh, based on the census data that was collected. And this was done because they felt that accuracy is the most important thing. And if people felt that any information they reveal could be later used against them, then um, the data collection body cannot do its job correctly. And so um, the law was repealed um, well, or changed in the last decade or so, which is a, a, a totally different discussion. But uh, it was interesting that it stood for about 60 years and it was, um, and when they, they thought about this, this use of data collection with one particular aim and then use of that data by agencies that were not connected with the first agency and who knows what they'll use it for. And therefore the simplest solution they found was to say, well, can't be used except for census, the Census Bureau in turn handing it over for statistical analysis for policy making and so on and so forth. So just a follow up uh, to say, um, um, Judith, please. Yeah, sorry, this was just a follow up to what was just discussed. I mean, the same issues don't and only raised in census data, but more generally. And what may be really of interest um, here is, for instance, the work of Sabina Leonelli, who's done quite a, an excellent job in, in the philosophy of science and trying to figure out what are the duties and responsibilities of people creating data sets in order to, on the one hand, to make it possible to people being responsible in using it along the line. So there is a lot of burden of those creating it because you, you need to decide which data to gather, how to document, how to implement, how to annotate. And with all of these decisions, you are basically foreshadowing what other people can do with it in the future. So, so basically there are, of course, and I think, um, so Justin, your talk was, I, I find it very interesting because it seems we're drawing similar inspirations by, uh, by Helen Longino and also coming to, to similar conclusions. So that was nice to see, basically. I just, I think basically, um, the perspective that you took on the user, I think it, it could be interestingly expanded by what, what Zina just said is who's producing the data, but also what types of obligations do you need um, so that other entities can double check, right? And this, this relates back to, to the explainability because you may not, actually it may not be only it, so there is putting the, the burden on the on the on the people using an ADM system, it may not be sufficient because you may also want to have people double checking. And these may be, for instance, people saying advocate groups, right? Because you can never check for every bias, you, you can never remedy every bias at the same time. So you may have to make decisions about what to take into account. But there may be reasons for, for certain advocacy groups for checking. Well, did you also check? that this group, group has not been discriminated against. And you can only do this if you have uh, placed certain obligations on the data generator, right? Because if they are not documenting, documenting what they did and what data they gathered and what methods they used, then you can't fulfill these obligations later on. So, so I think interlinking this is, is something we've been working on for a while as well, which, uh, so, sorry if that was more of a comment. I usually hate this more of a comment type of things, but now I did it, sorry. <laughs> No, that's great. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I should say also I'm in Hanover now and uh, was just at a conference with Sabina and had a you know 
long conversation with Sabina about these issues, right? Um, and I won't put words in her mouth, but I think sort of one of the things that came out of this the, of the conversation was that, yeah, it, so it is an interesting question to think about um, the conditions under which organizationally misaligned data use is problematic, right? Because it is a widespread phenomenon and it happens all the time. And I mean, there's no getting around um, the reuse of data where you have some sort of organizational misalignment, right? The question is, what are the conditions under which that leads to untrustworthy research or um, to, to, you know, sort of epistemic um, epistemic problems and things things like that? Right? I'll, I'll say there's a lot of added value in these discussions. Like I get to learn a lot from this, and I would like just to make a, a, a really short uh, follow up uh, comment uh, that in. While it's a real challenge to, to make the data really accurate and do uh, and and like design it to be reliable in this way, sometimes and overcome uh, biases along the way. Sometimes our biggest bias is in reality, and sometimes accurate AI system um, is exactly what we don't want too. So it's a uh, uh, you know to to echo uh, uh, some sort of a a common injustice or something like this. So uh, that can be considered to, to, to the basket of challenges that we have, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think it's, you know, again, sort of going back to the sort of policing example, I mean, to say that, that practices lead to inaccurate data is not necessarily a bad thing because sometimes organizations are doing things that are just different from collecting accurate data. That's not, that's not necessarily what they're doing, right? Um, think also about, you know, sort of using social media data for healthcare purposes or something like that, right? Well, I mean, the people who are producing that data, you know, people who are, you know, posting whatever online, that it's maybe not necessarily what they don't think of themselves as producing accurate data. It's maybe just not what they're doing, which is fine, right? But, you know, in, in situations like that, we need to be careful about the uses to which that data is put. Wow, yeah, that's, um, let me thank you, Justin, for this, uh, uh, as one of our YouTubers uh, written, fabulous, um, and we'll now go to the, our next, uh, um, our next uh, uh, speaker. Before I introduce our next speaker, let me just uh, make a co-host as accustomed. Okay, so. Our next speaker is uh, Sina Fazelfau, an assistant professor of philosophy and computer science in the Department of Philosophy and in the College of Computer Sciences at Northwestern University. Among his many roles, Sina is a member of the Institute for Exp uh, uh, Experiential AI and was recently uh, in the council, uh, a council, the council fellow on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Data Policy. Um, I found out that Sina um, has his early education in electrical and biomedical engineering from McMaster University, and that he also did an additional master degree in uh, medical biophysics here at the University of Toronto. So even if it's uh, uh, only uh, virtual, I'm happy to have you back in UFT and waiting to hear your talk. And thank you so much for your part in this uh, workshop.
Thank you so much, Rory. It's uh, great to be back virtually at U of T. Uh, so I'm Sina Fazalpur, uh, and I should say I'm from Northeastern University, not uh, Northwestern. Uh, and I'm jointly appointed in the Department of uh, Philosophy and Computer Science. And uh, the, what we, I will be talking about today is uh, kind of drawn on some of the joint work that I've done with uh, an ongoing work, uh, different type of project with uh, Maria de Ortega, who's my collaborator uh, and uh, at University of Texas, Austin. Okay, so as we know, uh, predictive models that uh, everybody has been talking about have been uh, used in many sensitive domains. And the hope in many cases is that these models that can use uh, large amounts of data and that rely on uh, uh, powerful machine learning algorithms can somehow improve uh, our performance, institutional and organizational performance compared to the cases where uh, we only have uh, human decision makers. But as we know, obviously, in many cases, the uh, promises uh, have come with significant risks, and especially uh, risks to marginalized communities. So many of the risks of these uh, cases in uh, sentencing, in uh, policing, in child welfare systems, in hiring, uh, has been particularly uh, kind of unevenly distributed, uh, such as to hurt uh, historically disadvantaged communities. And so in response, there's been many calls towards uh, what is uh, variably called ethical AI, responsible AI, trustworthy AI, uh, to make sure that these systems, uh, we can use their benefit, but also kind of organize our uh, organizations, or kind of come up with socio-technical approaches, both technical interventions, but also organizational approaches uh, to make sure that uh, we mitigate the risks that are associated with uh, the systems and that their performance and their impact aligns with our values. And typically they take these forms of like a number of principles and values and so on and so forth. Uh, for my purposes, the details of these things don't matter. Uh, what matters is that the way that they're typically implemented in our current evaluation and design practices. And the way that this is done uh, often is with a kind of a narrow focus on the predictive model itself. So we have a data set and the model uses this data set to make a prediction. And so uh, imagine that X is our features in our data set, input features, and Y is an outcome that we want to predict. We have a predictive model that gets from X to Y. And uh, this evaluation and design practices that try to implement trustworthy AI, responsible AI, or whatever, typically focus on evaluating the immediate outcomes of this predictive model or coming up with different ways of intervening on the model, maybe changing the data set, maybe changing the objective of the model, and so on. And the hope here is that when we do that, we can actually make the systems maybe less biased, mitigate some of the problems that we have, uh, but also uh, make sure that it still uh, performs better than human decision makers. So it's better than predictors and uh, uh, judges, uh, better than human uh, doctors in many different cases and so on and so forth. Now, in uh, a number of previous work, I have 
that discuss the limitations of this narrow focus on the predictive model in the case of fairness uh, and uh, discussions of justice and why this type of approach actually undermines our aim. And we need to uh, take a kind of a broader perspective, a socio-technical perspective, if you seriously want to address those issues. Today, though, I kind of want to focus on another thing. Uh, I want to focus on the fact that in many uh, social uh, kind of domains of application that are quite consequential and that are cause for concerns uh, in predicting recidivism, in child welfare services, in hiring, in many of these cases, these predictive models are not actually used as a standalone decision makers. Rather, they're decision support systems. That is, they provide a prediction to a human decision maker that is informed by it, but is not bound by it. That is, ultimately, it's the human who makes the decision. So we face an obvious question. Current practices focus on, take their kind of locus of attention to be the predictive model. But ultimately, what is making the decision is the human decision maker. And ultimately, the performance that matters is the human plus AI performance that matters. So how should we change or should we change our current practices when we consider this fact, when we consider the functionality of a predictive model as a decision support systems? And I will suggest that, yes, we should change this because this requires new norms. When we take this broader system and not even that broad, but just a human plus predictive model into account, that requires that we consider new norms of evaluation and design. Uh, and part of that is that many of the model level properties that we might care about, accuracy in some sense, um, fairness related properties, parity in some metric that you might care about, transparency related properties, many of these things are actually not indicative of this uh, broader system level properties. And if you really care about these characteristics and you want to make sure that they are uh, at an optimal level or at a good level, at the system level, you actually need to follow uh, different kinds of norms. And I consider two types of example, just as, as an example of this. There are more examples and like uh, uh, in uh, other places, Marianne, I talk about uh, those other cases, but I just wanna focus on two cases. One case is the complementarity between human AI uh, uh, in as part of the same team. And the other one is compatibility in the case that we update AI systems. So let's focus on the first one. So typically when you look at some type of headlines and uh, that is actually often quite reflective of research in these cases, you see say, uh, the headlines like the, this AI beat human beings in this task, or it's better than human being in this other tasks. And typically these tasks are kind of constrained uh, predictive tasks. And obviously the type of lens that uh, underpins this type of headlines and underpins this type of uh, research practices that actually evaluate these systems in this way is an individualistic lens that is framed, that frames this uh, situation as a kind of a competition. First, within different types of predictive models, which I'm kind of interchangeably using with AI. Uh, and between those models and the human decision maker. And the assumption in many of these cases is actually then the way that it's used in current practice is that the best predictive model, according to some notion of uh, goodness, uh, 
is also the best decision support system. It's the model that uh, we should use in our organizational uh, and institutional setting. And the challenge from this perspective typically is the, to ensure that uh, human experts, judges, child, uh, child uh, welfare, call workers, uh, hiring managers and recruiters, the challenge is that they adhere to the recommendation of this model that is superior to them. Now, anyone who's familiar with uh, complexity science, with uh, social science, with feminist epistemology and social epist uh, and philosophy of science, uh, and broadly with diversity research, would immediately know that uh, the norms that should govern the kind of epistemic performance, that is knowledge-seeking performance of individuals, uh, do not necessarily uh, produce the best team of individuals. In many cases, there are actually different types of group level norms that uh, corresponds to how individuals or team members relate to each other that uh, go beyond different uh, types of norms that uh, uh, kind of govern individual or should govern uh, individual uh, behaviors. And so as an, one example of this type of group level norms, we can consider cognitive diversity or complementarity that might arise between the uh, capabilities and limitations uh, of different individuals in a team. So as an example, consider this very, very kind of highly stylized, but I think capture some of the basic elements of how things are currently done and how they could be done differently. So consider this a very simple predictive task. Suppose that we have a predictive task and we are considering the performance of different predictive models and a human being on that task. And as a measure of performance accuracy, uh, we have a loss function. And it could be anything, uh, it could be empirical risk. So we are trying to minimize on our data set the difference between the predictions of individual, whether it's a model or human beings, and what the actual outcome is. And from this perspective, if the loss value is smaller, it means that the performance is better. Uh, oh, sorry, these things don't correspond to each other. This, uh, should be A and this should be B. So when we look at the loss for each of the individuals, we'll see that uh, this predictive model A has the lowest loss. And from this perspective, it's the best individual that has the lowest loss. And in current practice, uh, this is typically how things are done. Now we might kind of include some type of regularizer, whatever, but typically we go with the model with the minimal loss, given the space of models that is available to us. But the question that is facing us is whether this model that is best individually is also the best decision support model. And the answer to that depends. What do I mean by this? It's not just enough to look at what the loss of the model is, but it might, even if we just focus on the predictive task and nothing else, it might also matter how the strength and the limitations of each individual, whether model or human being, are uh, distributed across this task. So suppose that uh, we have different regions. We have not just like a one uh, uh, case, but different regions of the input features uh, space. So in this region, this model exhibits a 0.5 loss. In this region, this, and so on and so forth. Now, this might be different for different individuals. And what we can see here is that there is variation between predictive model B, which is not which is good, but not as good as predictive model A, and the human, such that 
There are cases where the loss of the human decision makers are quite high, but the loss of the predictive model B are low. And there are cases where the loss of the predictive model B is high, but the loss of the human is low. That would mean that when we put these things together, and let's, for the sake of simplicity, suppose that we have a kind of an integrator, which could be the human uh, herself, that decides which, uh, who, who should make the decision or who should make the prediction in each region. Uh, so in this region, the integrator would say, let's uh, go with the model, but in this region would say, go with the human. This would enable complementarity between the strengths of the team, such that they cover each other's limitation. And when we look at the situation from this perspective, uh, then we will see that the best model, the best individual, might not actually be part of the best team. It matters how team members complement each other, how they relate to each other. Uh, and uh, I should also say this, uh, uh, representation is uh, something that I have adopted from Kate Donahue and Alex Chulichova's recent paper. It's a, it's a little bit different, but uh, I should mention, I've, I forgot to put the reference there. Uh, so this is just one example of how system level norms might be something kind of above and beyond what we might consider at the individual level. And complementarity is just one of them. Anybody who's familiar with, uh, and I think some of the previous uh, speakers nicely uh, highlighted some of these features. Anybody who looks at diversity science, that looks at organizational research or kind of uh, philosophy of science, social epistemology, knows that there, when we have a group, that when we have a case of collective inquiry, there are typically different norms, norms of communication, organizational norms that matter for how the team as a whole performs. And these cannot be kind of gleaned from a, by just focusing on the individual. And when, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, when we try to implement this type of norms uh, in the way that the uh, predictive models are designed, uh, then we can actually see substantive uh, system level gains in accuracy. So this might be done in different ways. It might be done by, you uh, incorporate it into your optimization objective. So in the way that you're trying to optimize the model, you say, uh, don't just minimize loss as such, but minimize loss particularly for cases that are difficult for human beings. If you make mistakes elsewhere, it's okay. Or you might just elicit human expertise when needed. When the model, let's say, uh, does not have enough confidence in its predictions, or there are cases, there are regions where its performance are not good, then you might defer uh, to human experts. And there are some, some kind of uh, nice work on this that are still, I, I would say, in the minority in the way that things are designed and uh, implemented. And importantly, in many of these cases, uh, considering this type of group level norms actually reduces accuracy at the model level. So if you're just focusing on the individual level, the model might not look that good. You only understand the benefits of it when you consider this decision support function. And uh, I, I won't talk about this, but I, I want to note that similar issues also arise with respect to fairness. So we have cases of fairness under composition when uh, whatever you mean by fairness in a particular context, whatever properties of the model you might mean by it, each part of the system might exhibit it, but together they might not. And sometimes you might have to change things in a particular way that individually might look unfair, uh, again, uh, fairness related, uh, 
but makes things better as a whole from an ethical perspective, from the perspective of fairness. So that's complementarity. Now, comp uh, compatibility. The main issue here is that when we are using these systems, we are using them in kind of dynamic changing environments. And in this type of environment, we need to consider certain type of other things. Now, let's consider one thing that happens in dynamic environment, a, strategy, a strategic behavior of uh, decision subjects. So you're using an algorithm to make sure uh, that uh, you predict whether somebody will be, let's say, a good student. Uh, so you're deciding uh, for graduate admission, let's say. Now, suppose your predictive model uh, latches onto the idea that doing internship is a predictor, is one of the main predictors of somebody ending up being a good graduate student. Then you might actually use that in your decision making. If uh, applicants learn this, then as time goes by, more and more applicants start doing internship. Obviously, this is not just the case of like uh, AI enabled or AI driven decision. It's just like a fact of organizational decision making. When people learn about certain things, then they might change their behavior. But this shifts the distribution in the applicants. Now suddenly many applicants start doing internship in a way that is not necessarily indicative of their good performance down the line. And this can undermine the accuracy of the model because internship is no longer really predicting uh, uh, who will be a good student, but it might also be potentially problematic with respect to fairness if it turns out that some students or students from certain types of demographics are better situated to do internship. This is kind of a one instance of Goodhart's law that when you use a predictive relation for uh, interventional purposes, it might turn out to be, you undermine the relation basically. But for our purposes, one promising response to this, and which also has the independent motivation is that we have to, one way of uh, countering this is by regularly updating the model. So if you regularly update the model, we can actually learn that doing internship is no longer a predictor of success. So far, so good. But we have a human being now in the loop. It's not just a, a predictive model. And when we update one part of the system, in all cases, not just in the human AI case, in any complex system, we have to consider how this updated part will hang together with the previous part. So in software cases, you know, you know that you want the updated version of your software to be compatible with the legacy system. In the markets, no company will go and change one part of their product uh, completely, even if they want to make it a lot better, because then the other parts of their product will fall apart. And the same thing happens here. When we update the model, we might get better accuracy, but that might also mean that we are shifting the error boundaries of the model. And this is uh, from the paper by Banzole et al. Uh, what that means is that the model will start making mistakes in certain cases, certain type of cases that it was previously quite accurate in. And in that case, uh, that might undermine the trust uh, user's understanding of the model. So like user had come to understood the model to be quite good in these cases, but now the model makes mistakes and that might undermine trust of the user in the system. So one possibility here is to make sure that we don't just in updating optimize for accuracy, but keep compatibility considerations into account to make sure that the model does not radically change. And in some cases, 
Uh, this might require making sacrifices at the model level, but again, uh, together at the human plus model level, this might mean that the model will perform better in a more sustainable way. So again, there are certain norms that we consider that come into view only when we consider the functionality of predictive models as decision support systems. And uh, model level norms are not informative about these things. Yet, uh, I think this is to a large extent ignored in a lot of technical, I gave some examples in which it's not ignored, but in a lot of technical and I think uh, philosophical and policy analysis. There are lots of philosophical discussions of updating uh, a lot more about accuracy versus interpretability trade-offs and when we should sacrifice interpretability for accuracy and so on. But in many of these cases, even though the in all, our, all of our current practice, these models are used as decision support. Most of the philosophical analysis don't consider the fact that there's the, the performance norms of the system might be different from the individuals. So what are the, the main takeaway really is that we need to consider the actual functionality of systems. And there are critical differences between the norms of human AI systems and the model level individualistic norms. And we should not ignore this. And when we consider this, then we can develop new epistemic and, or we need to develop new epistemic and ethical normative frameworks. And here we can uh, draw on literature in, as I said, in social epistemology, philosophy of science, complex systems and more, but we need to adopt them to this particular context of uh, AI decision-making or AI-enabled decision-making. And this is, I think, uh, kind of a more broadly, and again, this came up in previous talks, but this part of a broader socio-technical perspective on how we evaluate and design the systems. At this point, the task really is to make sure that we implement these things. The socio-technical perspectives are important, and when we consider them, um, we notice certain things that we would otherwise not notice. So here's another paper uh, that Maria and I had uh, that recently came uh, came out, uh, which is takes into account the considerations of diversity throughout the design and development pipeline of AI systems. And when we consider that again, we will see other type of missing humans. But here I just focused on the decision making. All right, great, thank you. Thank you so much, Sina. Um, so let me begin by saying that uh, uh, your, your talk has uh, received um, quite a few examples from our YouTuber uh, uh, followers. And, and there is some really nice, uh, uh, like they, they took the theory that you've discussed and they put it into like real world examples with, for example, physicians who are highly trained and, and, and empowered to make judgment calls. Uh, while for example, and this is just for an example, customer support representatives at a bank uh, can only uh, make decisions that are supported by the software that the, the bank is using. And, and follow up on that, the, the, the uh, mentioned the, the limitations that sometimes insurance company uh, put on doctors' autonomy to collaborate with their patients, and so on, so on. So it's a it's a nice way to 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 put what you said uh, in, in practical means, and I thank the YouTubers for for uh, uh, developing this discussion there. Um, 
please, one of our panels, uh, 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 you're invited to, to raise questions. Okay, so your talk was wonderful and very clear, and uh, uh, thank you for this. Um, Esther, I'll, 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 you'll be our next uh, speaker, and you're already a co-host. So um, let me just briefly introduce our next speaker. Our next speaker is Esther Kimolen. She is an associate professor of digital technology uh, regulation and the vice dean at the research, of research at the Tilburg Institute of Law, Technology and Society at the Netherlands. Her research is focused on the role of trust, trustworthiness, and privacy. She is a core member of the Tilburg Artificial Intelligence Special Interest Group, and she uh, co-chairs the ethical, legal, and societal aspects of the AI cluster in that group. She also co-leads the um, uh, Connecting Humankind Through Algorithms and Information Networks uh, uh, research project. And her publications are found in key journals of regulation, technology, philosophy, and STS and uh, uh, science, technology, and society studies. Um, uh, it is a true pleasure to have Esther participating in this workshop. And Esther, you, thank you so much for participating. You have our attention. We don't hear you, so uh, you can unmute yourself. We see the screen, but we don't hear you. I think now it should work, does it? Yeah, now it works. Okay, okay, perfect. I'm so sorry, yeah. Even after two years of Zoom, I still get, uh, I can mix up the, the buttons, uh, so to say. Uh, thank you for your kind words, uh, Ori, and for, and for having me. Um, actually, recently I became a full professor and not that that means that I have any more time to do research because most of the time I'm uh, in meetings as a vice dean for research. And uh, so I'm very happy that today I can uh, get back to the content and to participate in this uh, uh, workshop. Um, um, yeah, I'm very yeah, happy to, to present this paper. It's still work in progress. And it is a kind of uh, yeah, programmatic paper, I would say. Uh, meaning that it kind of tries to uh, set a framework for how to think of trustworthy tech companies um, by distinguishing uh, three conditions uh, that I think a trustworthy tech company should adhere to. Um, and it's for me, it's very nice to be kind of at the end of this uh, workshop because a lot of the things that already have been discussed by other presenters are very important for me to, to kind of build on. So it's definitely not that all of my work is original. It actually builds a lot on, on work that has already been, uh, uh, been done um, in order for me to be able to, to build this framework for, for, for or this account of trustworthiness in the context of uh, tech companies. Um, and uh, yeah, as a kind of, maybe it's kind of spoiler, I don't know. Um, so I will argue that, that um, uh, for tech companies to be acknowledged as being trustworthy, um, still a lot of work uh, needs to be done. So I think based on the account that I tried to develop, and if you look at practice, like how 
businesses operate and what their business models are, uh, it might be that my uh, trustworthy tech company account is rather uh, demanding. Um, so, a bit of, of, of uh, background. I think if you look at the discussions in academia, but also in, in the policy uh, domain, you can see that trust in relation to technology has gained a lot of attention. Um, and this makes, I believe, complete, uh, com completely sense because if people don't trust uh, the technology, they are not going to buy it, they are not going to use it. So in a society that is organized and shaped by technologies, it would be highly uh, problematic if people didn't want to engage uh, with these technologies. So it makes sense that people and uh, both on the policy as on the company side have put a lot of time and effort into developing technologies that are enabling people uh, and users to trust it at these technologies. And you see that in different domains, uh, you have a lot of user experience and interface, user interface research, from the legal point of view, if you look at it from the uh, European perspective, in the GDPR, there are a lot of um, um, requirements set in place that should strengthen the position of the data subject, of the end user, uh, uh, to make them more uh, in control over their uh, data, uh, to make it easier for them to trust uh, uh, these data-driven technologies. And while I think that trust is still a key aspect in policy making and, and thinking about human uh, technology interactions. I also think that at uh, the last couple of uh, five to ten, five years, we've also seen increasingly that uh, um, these public and private actors are investigating how trustworthiness uh, can become more of a, of a focal point. And if, as we already seen uh, during these, this workshop, trust and trustworthiness are, are obviously connected. Uh, they're kind of conceptual twins, but they're not identical twins. Eh? So they're related, but not uh, uh, the same. Um, if you look at some examples of this focus on uh, trustworthiness, I think in, in the EU, uh, trustworthiness became uh, top of the agenda uh, due to the uh, high-level expert group on artificial intelligence. Uh, they uh, published their ethics guidelines for trustworthy AI and in these guidelines, they provide, provide uh, a kind of framework uh, to promote trustworthy AI and to focus on key values, which um, Judith already uh, introduced. And so they give a kind of guidance to, to, to developers of AI applications uh, to, to develop and implement uh, AI in such a way that, that it um, earns our, our trust, uh, so to say. But it's not just in the EU that uh, trustworthiness uh, became something that, that that's yeah, caught attention. Um, if you look at, for instance, the US, we have this had this discussion on fiduciary duties. And uh, fiduciary relations, the traditional ones, um, are uh, uh, examples of these traditional fiduciary relations are, for instance, a relation between a client and a lawyer or a patient and a doctor. Uh, these are kind of relations that we uh, think of as being based on trust and, and confidence. Uh, so the patient or the client is, is vulnerable and dependent on the lawyer or the doctor and the trustee to look after their interests and to really uh, wholeheartedly put 
their expertise to work to find the best possible solution um, for their clients and patients. So the Addis fiduciaries, they have the moral obligation and not to betray the trust of their trustors, and they should for, uh, therefore fulfill duties of trustworthiness and loyalty. So the argument has been made that uh, when we look at data-driven companies, they should also be kind of bestowed with, with fiduciary duties of trustworthiness and loyalty, uh, because our relationships with, with big tech companies such as Facebook, Google, and Uber is in a similar vein characterized by vulnerability, by dependency. And these companies that present themselves as being experts, and they also want to say at least to believe that they're trustworthy. So they should be seen, so the argument goes, as kind of information fiduciaries. And I, I as you might can imagine, so um, uh, for instance, I'm Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook now, Meta said uh, that they agreed with this perspective in the sense that they, for instance, said that our job is to give uh, them people tools and it was largely their responsibility to figure out how to use them. Now there comes this kind of a shift. Uh, I think we understand that we need to take a broader view. We're not just building tools, but we need to take full responsibility for how people are using those tools as well. So what we see here, and, and I'm not saying that nor the ethical guidelines of AI in the EU, nor the discussion on fiduciary duties in the US are the way forward. I'm actually on both aspects quite critical. Um, um, you do see that um, uh, um, with this, um, the discussions, the focus more goes towards uh, uh, those in power. So what do uh, these companies need to do in order to earn our trust? But as I said, there's also quite some uh, critique. Uh, trustworthy AI is conceptually misleading. Um, it, it does... Um, um, yeah, provide maybe the idea that, eh, that we should just focus on technology while as we already heard, it should be a social technical system. There are no clear enforcement mechanisms, which uh, when there are other interests at stake, it makes it easy for companies to ditch their responsibilities as a trustworthy actor, but go for their own interest, making this uh, guidelines, for instance, just a, a marketing trick eh, to have a kind of good reputation and then uh, just leave it uh, like that. Um, especially concerning these fiduciary duties, there are uh, other points of critique that it's not compatible with certain business models. Eh? So the pay with your data model is really difficult to, to kind of bring together with this idea of fiduciary duties. Uh, also because uh, the interest of shareholders for these companies always comes first. So it becomes quite difficult to be a trustworthy actor. If you oftentimes eh, are in a situation where um, to, to channel uh, um, harden, eh? very difficult to encapsulate the interests of, of the, the trust stars because you have uh, the interests of the shareholders to take into account. And, um, and there's a lot of emphasis on, on dependency in these relations that we have with these tech companies. But of course, it's not sufficient to have to just focus on, on dependency. Uh, there needs to be more um, uh, in order to speak of a, 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 a genuine fiduciary relation. So this brings me uh, to, to, to what I said that, that um, um, uh, so this, these two examples illustrate the fact that we are focusing, I believe more uh, on the, this, on the, the, the trust, the trustee, so to say, instead of the trustor. And um, uh, this kind of 
to me, I think this is a good idea. So if, if you have to choose between trust or trustworthiness, I think it's good in the context of AI and data-driven technologies that we focus more on uh, 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 the trustee in the sense that it's really more about the responsibility taking of the companies instead of that we're focusing on reasonable risk taking of, of citizens. Um, but of course, I did, this begs the question like, okay, but, but how do we, uh, what, what does trustworthiness boils down to in the context of, of tech companies? And what does that actually uh, uh, mean? Um, and uh, to answer that question, um, um, I can build on, 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 on amongst others, the work of, of Judith uh, uh, together with, with Rieder and, 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 and Wong. Um, but also on, on uh, so in the in the domain of AI ethics, but definitely also in the in the um, literature on philosophy on uh, trustworthiness. So what this philosophy literature on trustworthiness is, is predominantly focused on uh, interpersonal relations, on second person relations. Um, so not so much on on trust in in, in uh, trustworthiness of, of tech companies. But I do think that we can find an important um, key elements that we could kind of translate to the context of uh, trustworthy tech companies. So quickly going through that, that literature, and especially I, I make use of the work of, of Karen Jones and, and Nancy Potter. So Jones, Jones says that uh, to be trustworthy with respect to, to an other actor in, uh, in a specific domain um, uh, can only happen if and only if this actor is competent in the specific domain and that it takes the fact that somebody is counting on her uh, to be a compelling reason uh, for acted, acting as counterman, so for acting trustworthy. And she adds to that that um, in order to be uh, 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 truly trustworthy, uh, you also actively have to identify yourself as trustworthy. So the, the burden of proof is really on uh, the actor that wants to be perceived as, as trustworthy. And N Nancy Potter also in a similar, yeah, makes the same argument but, but with different, uh, um, a different interpretation. So she makes a point that uh, persons with more privilege or power have proportionately more work to do to give these insure assurances that they are actually trustworthy. And that you can understand that claim in, in two senses. First, that uh, persons with more privilege and uh, they bear more of the responsibility to act trustworthy because they have the power. And secondly, um, and those with more privilege uh, may actually initially be, be less trustworthy because there is a disposition of, of, uh, to abuse uh, their power. So here you see that, that is, there are different reasons or different arguments uh, uh, to make here. Um, so if we, so thinking about uh, what, what does it mean to be trustworthy? So uh, you have to uh, give assurances, you need to be competent, you need to be committed. And um, we can also make the, the connection to some epistemic competences uh, that, that kind of need to be nurtured, nurtured in order to be trustworthy. Um, uh, because uh, it's of course trustworthiness, again, also relational, uh, it knows it has relational aspects. So as a trustee, you have to be knowledgeable about the interests and vulnerabilities of the trustee. So you have to be kind of um, competent to understand uh, the, the, the content of the testimony of these uh, um, uh, trustors that are, that are counting on you. 
And you also have to be aware of your own failures in understanding, so your limits in understanding what other people actually need. So these are all kinds of, I think, building blocks that can help us to kind of get a, a feel for what trustworthiness in the context of tech companies can boil down to. So as I said, so looking at the literature, I think three aspects aspects uh, uh, stand out. So you have to give assurances indicating your trustworthiness. And if we think of that on the interpersonal level, we see that uh, we normally give um, these signals of trustworthiness while making promises and being explicit about where our competences lie. However, I think it's, it's really too demanding to expect end users to actively look for publicly made promises by company representatives to assess the tech company's trustworthiness, that people do not directly interact with these representatives of these companies, they interact with other companies' applications. So giving assurances in the trustworthy in the tech company context should, I believe, take place through the design of these applications, which I believe um, uh, might uh, ask for quite, I will discuss this later also, but a bit of a different perspective on how to design uh, these applications. Um, secondly, yeah, we, we, we said that to be trustworthy is to be a, is also connected to be a competent in a certain uh, domain. I think that that Judith already mentioned. So I I use I, I'm I'm trusting my doctor to provide me with a diagnosis, not necessarily necessarily to advise me on my mortgage, so to say. Yeah? So we are competent in a certain domain. Currently, if you look at and I'm. I'm currently doing that, so reviewing, for instance, job applications um, for, for uh, data scientists or for ML experts, we see that predominantly there is this focus on technical competences. Um, but I would make the argument that uh, to become a trustworthy tech company, we need to have also technomoral competence um, uh, of technical employees in our uh, organization in order to be able to signal this trustworthiness through the design. And thirdly, yeah, to be committed to putting these competences to work in service of others who count on you. This is something I believe needs to be uh, embedded on the organizational level. So we need to have robust commitments in the organizational structure of the tech company in order to make sure that uh, when there is this um, um, conflict uh, between the interests of the company and the interests of the trustor, that it's clear that if you want to be a trustworthy company, that um, the interests of your trustor should go, come first. Um, so trying to, to kind of um, flesh that out a little bit, so these three conditions. So what am I thinking? about when I think about a signaling trustworthy design. This is a bit of the, of the box thinking, and it's, it's um, so hopefully we can also further discuss this in, in our Q&A. Um, so looking at what we, what we see now in the data ethics domain um, and the AI ethics domain, and we see, of course, a lot of emphasis on explainable AI. And this is actually um, resonating with what Judith also already mentioned, is that uh, to be trustworthy is also being very open and explicit about what you as an actor can, but also cannot do. And um, this might actually go against a lot of the design choices that we are currently seeing and which are focused on 
user friendliness and, and a smooth interaction. So maybe it's important uh, to really signal very early in the beginning uh, when you interact with an AI-driven application, what the limits are of that application. And this might mean uh, that in the design process, you are not, uh, oftentimes uh, we speak of balancing values, but maybe we should really kind of um, abandon the word balancing, but really thinking about prioritizing uh, values. So if you want to be a trustworthy actor, uh, thinking back to these traditional fiduciary um, uh, relationships, then the, the interests of the patients and the, and the um, um, clients uh, come first. So um, it's not about balancing uh, necessarily values, but really putting some values uh, at, really at the, at the top of, of your list, so to say. And one way of doing that, um, which I find very interesting, is this movement of design justice, so community-led practices um, uh, about really trying to collaboratively with the people that are actually going to use or being targeted uh, by these AI practices, try to, to, to kind of really um, um, engage them in designing uh, these uh, applications. Um, the second uh, condition when we talk about these technomoral competences, um, as I said, I'm looking at these job applications and there you see the focus is predominantly on uh, techno technological skills. You have to be able to, um, um, you need to know uh, your R and Python, etc. So you have to be uh, very good and at the technical level, which of course makes sense because it is of course a very important um, aspect of, of uh, uh, the job. But if we want to have uh, trustworthy tech companies, we might need to do more or need to look for more than just uh, technical um, issues. And um, we have to kind of nourish um, genuine moral attention, um, which goes beyond the focus on data, but really is about um, uh, what is actually the, the, the problem in the societal problem that we uh, try to solve here and maybe not try to automat automatically define it as a technical problem, but really start by seeing it as a, as a societal uh, issue. But this is quite difficult, I believe, eh, for tech um, uh, employees because, of course, I see the world through data, which makes complete sense that we are all we all are mediated in a certain way, and we all see uh, the world around us uh, through certain mediations. And and of course, for tech employees, this mediation is is driven by data driven uh, technologies. And here, I think that um, uh, the English um, philosopher Aris Murdoch might kind of help us. Like, how can we try to, 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 to nourish to, to, to this genuine moral uh, attention. And she says that we need to nurture a just mode of looking and a good quality of consciousness, uh, a mouthful. But what she says is like, we have to kind of engage in unselfing. And unselfing with that, she means, it, it, it sounds a bit esoteric, but it's, it's not. Um, that she says like, we, have, we, we all have this, tendency to look to the world uh, through our own uh, biases and, and preoccupations. And this makes us um, biased in the sense that we, we, even if we want to try uh, to solve issues, we always look for solutions that we are the one and that we are able to provide, for instance. So she makes the argument that we really have to kind of 
get rid of what she calls a fat relentless ego and we have to um, um, uh, engage in what she refers to as moral imaginations uh, imagination and uh, to see another person uh, uh, justly and we need to kind of adopt their perspective or become more clearer on the context that these persons are, are living in. So moral imagination as a, as a way of, of seeing the world, more, actually the world more uh, in, 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 in a more complete way. And interestingly enough, she says that um, this is something you can learn, especially when you're in, in a training situation where you also feel kind of uncertain about what you do and, and how the world around you actually looks like. These are the moments that we could also train ourselves in this uh, moral imagination. So this is kind of the idea that we, if we train data scientists, ML experts, also on the job in our companies, that we should, together with, of course, the technical competences, also um, uh, look at the techno-moral competences. And finally, so on the third level, um, in order to ensure that we, we, we have this robust commitments here, the organization level uh, uh, comes in. And uh, I think uh, this also again uh, resonates with, with uh, the earlier talk of, of Justin Biddle, uh, that in order to make sure that, um, that this technical uh, tech company can be trustworthy, we also need to organize it in a way that these technical competent um, uh, tech employees uh, can work in good way on their uh, um, signaling trustworthy uh, AI applications. And looking at the time, I quickly just mentioned them. So interdisciplinary teams can be very helpful uh, to do that because it, 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 it forces you uh, to interact with legal experts, with tech experts to make that work, um, to really have written down policies and obligatory trainings, um, ethics, Compliance is something I, I came up with together with my data science students that you, in your organization have a kind of hotline to the highest uh, echelon uh, if you see, if you come across an, an ethical relevant uh, question or problem that you immediately can um, uh, escalate, that, that there is a clear line uh, of, of interaction. And uh, also to invest in holistic business uh, audits, which again is also related to what Judith says about explainability, so that you organize your um, uh, tech company in a way that actually people from outside can scrutinize your operation. So this would bring us with a kind of trustworthy tech company, very kind of holistic perspective, where you have so uh, the technology developed in a way that it's actively, proactively signals, uh, uh, gives uh, signals trustworthiness, so it gives assurances. This can, and this can only be, be developed by people that are not just technical, technical, technically wise, but also morally wise within an organization that enables them to, to, to really do so. Um, and I think this is kind of a, a high demanding model. It's not a pick and choose model. So in my view, you need to adhere to all three levels in order to be trustworthy. Um, so I think, I think it's a demanding account, maybe an ideal typical account that we will never really reach, I don't know. Um, and, I don't, and I think that if we would kind of do an empirical analysis that uh, taking this kind of account of trustworthiness that currently many companies would not meet uh, these requirements. And this is the end of my uh, talk. Thank you so much for this amazing talk. I, uh... Let's open the stage uh, for comments or, or questions if we have. And 
Okay, so I'll just, I'll, I'll make, so, sorry, do we have a, yeah, okay, Justin, please. Thanks for your talk. Um, can you, uh, well, so I guess I had a question about the, the organizational um, commitments and if you could maybe say a little bit about like which of those you think, um, I mean, I think a lot of companies already do some of those things, right? Um, so I was wondering if you could say more about sort of, of which of those bullet points you think um, companies need to do more in and how they might. And then um, secondly, I maybe I missed it, but I didn't see any kind of um, kind of recommendations for processes for system design. Like there are some standards out there involving participatory design and things like that, like that, um, you know, put forward sort of processes for um, what needs to be involved if an AI system is to be designed in an ethical and responsible manner. And I, I wonder if you would, um, you would consider that as an additional kind of organizational requirement for trustworthiness. Yeah, good. Yeah, these are very interesting um, questions. Um, as to the first or which of the ones that I listed, I think needs to be, um, yeah, more work needs to be done on them. Um, so first of all, I think, so I did some, some empirical research in, uh, in companies. And um, so one of the things that I see is that, um, of course, everybody preaches about interdisciplinary research teams. But in practice, if you look at how it is organized, they're still in different uh, parts of the of the organization, right? So oftentimes, so I'm of course I work at a law faculty, so the legal experts are oftentimes somewhere in the end, right? They they are uh, introduced. So then a lot of the the the, 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 the uh, decisions that are actually very important have already been made. Um, uh, so the, there is of course a team, but the way in which um, the timeline of how these teams then operate, I believe is still rather in a kind of different phases, while it's not really collaborative. So this is one thing I think um, more work needs to be done on that. And it's difficult because they're still talking the different language. Um, uh, so we do try um, at Zurich University, we have two, two kind of two programs, one for data scientists and one for law scholars. So we try the law scholars to kind of feed them with some more kind of basic technical uh, um, vocabulary. And on the other side, we try to teach a data scientist to, to kind of get a feel for the GDPR and for, for ethics, et cetera. And then we hope ideally that they meet and then they can more or less understand each other. So this is one thing. And, um, and also this ethics hotlines, of course, it's a bit of a kind of maybe not the best descript description, but um, um, at least in the Netherlands, so we had I had a meeting with with like like board level people, like uh, they are really high in the organization. And if you ask them, like, okay, but who is responsible uh, for these uh, ethical uh, applications? They're like, yeah, our data scientists. You have to come to us and tell us when they uh, comes uh, when there is something at stake. They just have to tell us. But if you then ask them, okay, but how is it organized? So how can they reach you? There is no answer because in the structure of the company this very kind of direct lines are not there yet. It's very still very hierarchical and it takes a long time to reach those in power within the organization, so to say. I do think for startups, it might be different. So I do see kind of a new generation of young people starting um, companies 
that are very aware of uh, the ethical implications of the use of data. They've seen, of course, Facebooks, the Amazons, and they don't want to fall in that trap, although they still want to make a lot of money as well. Um, but they also feel that there is a kind of different time and different um, demands from the public. So I do believe that it's easier to set up a company with the, this specific values in mind than adding in to your organization uh, um, when you're already kind of an established organization. So that's also why I think that for a lot of current big tech companies, this trustworthiness uh, account is way too ambitious because they're already kind of organized in a way that, that doesn't really allow this to, to, to take shape. And I forgot your second question, I'm so sorry. If you think that there um, uh, uh, might be room for, say, requiring certain processes for sort of ethical and responsible design, like you know, in, involving you know stakeholder identification and stakeholder engagement or or that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't. I, so my perspective on that is that there are there are quite a few of them actually. Yeah? So you can look at academia and you can have value sensitive design. In the in, in the Netherlands, we have. Uh, um, uh, guidance ethics, so to say, which is also kind of hands-on way of organizing these meetings. Um, I think the problem is there are so many, but which one is, does actually work, right? So I'm really kind of also, um, I think research needs to be done kind of like A-B testing with, with ethics uh, guidelines and practices, like what does actually work? So to be honest, I tell my data scientists that I don't know. So I kind of provide them with a couple of them and tell them like, keep on checking the internet for new ones to come and see how it develops. I don't know. So I don't know, I don't know if you came across one that you think like this is the one that works best. I don't know. I mean, so I can say we're, we're starting a project on this where we're sort of implementing and assessing the IEEE, a recent IEEE standard. Um, but it's just in the beginning of it. And I agree with you that, I mean, we're in the situation where we've got all of these different standards out there and we don't really know which ones work. So, yeah. um, I, I have a concern to raise, like, I, I don't know, uh, I'd be happy to hear what you think of it. So all those practices, for example, take for example the hotline, the ethics hotline, which is a great idea for the concerned citizen or the or the uh, journalist or, or to reach someone within the company who, who can who has the means to investigate what's going on. And what I'm worried, or, or this is like my thought, is that this would be um, a tool for as other uh, uh, things for ethics washing and obviously it is in the, in the good direction so so it's not the tool itself it's not the 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 hotline itself but something else within the organization will make it trustworthy so not only the tools that it's giving to the public and i wonder what that is like and yeah it's, a good, yeah it's a good question and and you know, talking about trustworthy tech companies in this time of day is not um, the easiest thing because you, you, it is quite difficult to kind of make an argument that there is a way uh, to, be trust, to be trustworthy. Um, so this is also why I, I find it important. So this, this paper I'm now working on um, tries to kind of 
um, bring together these, these three, three conditions, although I can also kind of elaborate on them in different papers, but I want to have them together because I do think it's a full package, right? So yeah. if you only have the whole line, so to say, or only have the commitments, it's not going to work if you don't have people within your company that actually are able to design eh, these trustworthy uh, um, um, applications. But the other way around, I also don't think it works. So even if you have very motivated, uh, uh, ethically aware um, um, activist uh, tech uh, uh, people involved, if your organization is not structured in a way that uh, there can actually make a difference, it is also going to be just window dressing. Yeah? So, so um, it really is a kind of combined holistic perspective. Um, so all these levels or all these three requirements need to be developed in order to, to make it trustworthy account, I think. Yeah, 100%. And this is an uh, almost unexplored terrain. Uh, everything's uh, new everywhere. Um, Judith, please. Yeah, there's time. I think a bit following up on, on Uri. Uh, as a, thanks for the fabulous talk. I think the three issues you raised are necessary but not sufficient uh, for trustworthy AI. That would be my hunch. Uh, the reason being, if you know, just practically speaking, if I talk to people in, in companies, something I hear sometimes is the data scientists want to change stuff, uh, but the people in charge of the company are not willing to change things. And I think that's that's also something that has been very much reported uh, by the media. So I think if at least two other factors need to play in. The one is what is hard regulation that is obliging companies to really take into account certain issues, because then Basically, there's an interest from the company side, from sales and marketing and whatnot, to acknowledge these limits. And this ties to, to some debate I had earlier is when people, something back also to Justin's talk, what, what, I, what I was told is, and it seems obvious, if people um, are involved in the development of ADM tools, they are less trusting uh, because they know all the flaws, right? And they, they sort of like have more of a justified trust. And basically, if, if you work with people in predictive policing and you develop them and show them what is actually fed into that, they are more realistic about the flaws and the shortcomings and have sort of like a bit of a better understanding. And I think um, you, sometimes the, you need to work also on the education side, because if you want to have techno moral people, right, you need to educate them in this way. And also, but the, the other side of the coin is basically also you need to have hard regulation that makes it easier for those people who want to be virtuous, if you want to use that term, to actually have the, the the environment in which they can do so, right? Because there are other interests there that, you know, if you want to be competitive in a certain market, you maybe have to be exploitative. I'm not just trying to justify this, but if there is, but regulation can also sometimes produce a level playing field so that the, the premises are made for people to behave more virtuous in a certain organizational context. So I think confined to, to the organization, uh, your account is super interesting, but I think in order to have this in the organization, you need to expand this to the world beyond, in particular, regulation and education to, to provide the baseline for that. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I don't have an argument against that I, in the sense that I agree. So it should indeed be. So I'm focusing now on this trustworthiness account and I should be more nuanced that indeed it can only exist in a kind of broader environment where there is a clear uh, um, hard regulatory framework set in place that enables and maybe also incentivize people or companies to, to, to actually have become uh, uh, trustworthy. Um, of course, it's a 
a different kind of debate. Huh? What do you leave up to the, the hard regulatory framework, and what uh, do you leave uh, to the to the companies? Um, um, so I, I personally, I think, even as a philosopher, I do think that the things that really, really matter most should be left up to the hard regulatory uh, framework, actually. Uh, but having said that, I also do know that in practice, there are so many day-to-day um, uh, uh, -day ethically relevant decisions that need to be made in companies that it always needs to be, come, uh, um, um, uh, it can be enough. So, so just as my account, indeed, if you don't take into account the hard regulation isn't sufficient, the hard regulation in itself also isn't uh, uh, sufficient. So it needs to be this interplay. And then of course, the interesting question is like, what do you leave to the hard regulation and what do you leave uh, to the companies? Um, and it's actually the same as with the trustworthy AI guidelines of the EU. It's very clearly stated that in order to have trustworthy AI, it needs to be lawful, ethical, and robust. And, um, and of course, a lot of the critique on the ethical guidelines is people forgetting about the legal uh, part, which is the AI Act and the GDPR, etc. It's the full package, of course, and this also applies to my trustworthy account, yes. Yeah. Vivek, please. Yes, uh, thanks for the talk. I just had a, a, a thought. I, I, I uh, worked with the IEEE on, uh, on the P7000 series of standards which look at ethics and AI-based systems. And one of the problems that we are coming up again and again and again is um, how do you validate um, in the, I suppose this ties back into the process for uh, for um, the process based uh, design uh, uh, process based uh, ways of checking if your AI, the product that you've come up with, right? forget about the company as an organization, is the tech company that has just put out the product, is that actually designed or have all ethical concerns been taken care of, and can you validate that? Um, even within the organization, I mean, forget about third party independent audit kind of things, which are probably going to be uh, A, too expensive, B, um, I mean, of course, if reg hard regulation, as you said, exists, then you can mandate that everything is audited, but that's probably going to be too onerous. Uh, but if you had a startup or even a mid-sized company or even a big company that wanted to do the right thing, how would it know that it did it? And uh, from a technical point of view, we keep coming up against this thing and uh, the design processes that we recommend um, ultimately end up saying, here's a series of steps to say, have you considered this, this, that, and the other? But that's still at the design team level. Um, the it, it sort of, for an organization to stand over it and say, we, we think we've come up with a product that is trustworthy. Uh, that requires a little more, more of the legal framework to sort of come in and say, these are the standards that you need to have met um, before you can even claim trustworthiness. Right? Uh, and, and so is, there, is, there a, is it an interplay between hard law and sort of soft law in terms of uh, mandating process requirements or mandating standards, um, compliance? Um, do you have any views on, on, on that? <clears throat> um, 
so so what I see in the legal domain is that standardization is is becoming big again. So it was it was um, it's kind of a soft law tool uh, to to kind of uh, from the in which also private partners can kind of self-regulate and, and have standards that also kind of to the outside world signal a certain uh, trustworthiness, you could you could say. So um, so I, I do think this can be can be a helpful helpful way to, to, to do that. But just as a yeah, it, the hard law is not sufficient. Uh, the, just looking at the ethics is not sufficient. I also don't think that uh, just relying on standards is, is sufficient. And then you, uh, because you also touched upon this, how do you validate that, uh, that you're doing the right thing? Um, and, and then I think, I, I don't have the answer to that. I think uh, Judith mentioned uh, explainability, yeah, so that, that you kind of can explain what, what you've done. And I also think, um, I think you have to kind of acknowledge the fact as a company that that it that you never have it 100% correct eh? so that, that there is always somewhere a bias or some somewhere something that you didn't expect it didn't want it to happen and eh, because it's just very difficult to oversee all the real life interactions and and, and consequences so I do believe that that uh, organizing your organization in, in a responsive way so that you're open for this feedback when it comes uh, that you're open to uh, to get it in and to do something with it that is really important not just from an ethical point of view but just as much from a technical point of view because uh, you can also optimize your models based on on that information but it's a different kind of optimization uh, uh, so you can optimize from effort for for a technical um from a technical perspective but you can also think about optimizing from an ethical perspective like um, uh, it, are we really still doing the things that that are uh, that we want from a democratic fundamental rights uh, perspective so yeah these are my thoughts i don't have i don't know if this actually answers your question okay this is this was a wonderful talk and a wonderful discussion thank you so much um esther for this um so now we're going to hear the last talk of this uh, workshop, the talk by me. So I'll just uh, quickly share the screen. And I'll try to make it quickly, just a second. And my question to you is, do you see my notes or only the, the slide? Looks good. Okay. So thank you so much uh, for staying so far and until now. <coughs> um, I'm going to discuss about the concept of trustworthy AI and see a little bit uh, show a little bit of the problems that it raises. Um, so this is why it waits for us in the next few minutes. I'll introduce the topic. And in order to explain why trustworthy AI is considered as uh, conceptual nonsense, as I stated here, 
Uh, I'll explain what I call the anthropocentric view of trust. Uh, in section three, I'll mention, I'll mention existing criticisms about the concept, and I'll emphasize what we risk by continuing to use this term. At the last section, I'll acknowledge that probably, besides AI ethicists and trust scholars, nobody cares if it will be called trustworthy AI or something else. Um, I wish I was wrong, but assuming this concept is already uh, widely used, um, I'll suggest where I think trust scholars and AI ethicists should focus, and I'll give you a teaser for, for, for the end of the presentation. It should be about democracy, power relations, and social justice. Okay, so let's go. The concept of trustworthy AI has become widely used among policymakers, technologists, um, investors, and scholars from uh, diverse fields. In this slide, you can see an indication for this, uh, Google trend search for uh, trustworthy AI, with interest beginning in September 2018 and interest peak only last month in May 2022. I'm not sure where the origins of this term uh, are, but I am sure that the EU's high-level group on AI popularized this term and that many, many other documents uh, also use this term. Uh, and as an indicator, the EU's high-level group on um, AI, I'll call it uh, by its acronym HLEG, I hope it's fine. Um, as an indication, the HLEG was set up by the European Commission in June 2018. And as you can see, back then there was no interest in this term at all. And the first draft was published in December 2018 with interest in this term beginning to rise. So all in all, whether they created this term or not, I associate the uh, initial popularization of the term uh, to them. So other influential examples that used and popularized the concept of trustworthy AI include the OECD's 2019 recommendations and principle, the US AI Initiative Act of 2020, and China's white paper on trustworthy artificial intelligence, and um, the AI Act known as the uh, AIA um, too. And there are of course many, many others uh, uh, on different levels. Two, and coming back, I want to focus on the HLEG's most influential document. Um, and I'll do that in order to make a distinction between trustworthy AI as a project uh, and as a narrative and trustworthy AI as a concept. Now, as someone uh, from the field of AI ethics, I'll approach this distinction by turning the criticism to ethics washing. So one of the stingiest criticisms was that the HLEG was excessively influenced by industry interests. It was called, and here I quote from a widely circulated article, um, being an exercise in ethics washing. Now that's quite a blame to throw. Roughly ethics washing is embracing the language of ethics to diffuse criticism or a facade of ethics while largely continuing business as usual. In the context of the uh, high level uh, expert group, Philosophers and ethicists of AI, Thomas Messinger and Mark Wackelberg, criticized the HLEG for their ethics washing. Not only they are both well-established scholars in the field, but also both are members of the HLEG, which renders the accusation as much worse. worse. Um, uh, they expressed a, a disappointment um, with the opportunity to affect the outcome of HLEG and said, as you can see on the screen, we sadly conclude that the few ethicists among uh, the 52 members of the AI advisory uh, group have been nothing but a fig leaf. 
So Metzinger criticized the project before. He pointed that his impression from the project is that trustworthy AI is a narrative which is about using ethics debate as elegant public decorations. This narrative is invented by uh, industry, a bedtime story for tomorrow's uh, customers. Now, fundamental to uh, Metzinger's criticism stand his examination of trustworthy AI as a concept. The underlying guiding idea of a trustworthy AI is first and foremost, conceptual nonsense. Machines are not trustworthy, only humans can be trustworthy. And now you can see where I took the uh, uh, title for this presentation from. Um, with these claims, it is possible to analytically separate criticism of uh, the age lag and, and the narrative, the trustworthy AI narrative, from criticism about the usage of the concept of trustworthy AI. And this is what I'll do in this paper. I'll focus on the concept. Um, okay, so if we wish to understand why the concept of trustworthy AI is uh, nonsense, as was expressed before, we have to look at the foundations of it, the concept of trust in the technological context. So the concept of trust is ubiquitous and local applications and understanding of the concept occur wherever it is mentioned. Um, for example, econom for economists, uh, trust is uh, usually discussed in terms of calculations and risk assessments. And for sociologists, trust is the enabler of social interaction and so on and so on. In the literature on trust in philosophy, trust appears a lot as a phenomena, but the concept is in many cases very elusive. Within social epistemology, the subfield of philosophy that deals with the social dimensions of knowledge, a very common view, arguably the standard view on trust is that whatever the concept means, trust relations are based on some kind of a human quality. Therefore, trust relations are only possible between uh, two agents, and these agents are individual persons. However, on a more generous interpretation, they involve groups too. And the bottom line is that, according to this common and accepted view, technologies are not uh, uh, objects of trust relations. And I'll get more into it to show you exactly why. And this view rests on a commonly acknowledged distinction, which I'm I'm happy that it has been mentioned before in this uh, workshop, so I'll go quickly through it. A uh, distinction between genuine trust and their reliance. And the source of this distinction is often traced, uh, as uh, uh, Judith said before, um, to um, Annette Byers' uh, fundamental idea that uh, um, trusting can be betrayed or at least uh, let down and not just disappointed. Now, there are a few other uh, ideas that complement this, as again, as I said before, and one of them is Hardin's idea that trusting is inherently subject to the risk that the others will abuse the power of discretion. And a third thing, third uh, option that I raise here is that trusting is not an attitude that we can adopt towards machinery. Um, now, unlike genuine trust, mere reliance is um, a way of acting in light of the probability that technology will perform successfully. Um, a related term to reliance is reliability, and it can be predicted in calculations and discussed in terms of, of um, uh, accuracy. But I won't develop the conceptual similarities here. What's important for me to say is that genuine trust entails a moral aspect that mere reliance and reliability do not. 
Now, trust, unlike reliability and reliance, is viewed as a kind of a moral relationship. It ascribed, as I said before, a human quality, such as goodwill, to the object of trust, the trustee. Trustee has um, have a goodwill towards the trustor. Another version of this moral relationship requires that the moral obligation and dependence of the person who trusts the trustor on the trustee's responsiveness to fulfill their commitments toward the trustor. So the later are referred to um, in theories, in philosophical theories, as responsiveness theories of trust. And according to these theories, um, to trust someone is to hold the belief that the object of trust, the trustee, will respond to that trust. So basically, I know that I am being trusted, so I have a goodwill or moral commitment to fulfill this trust. Can technologies have goodwill? Can uh, technologies fulfill commitments? Trust requires a human quality, and technologies do not have this human quality, at least yet. Therefore, technologies cannot be objects of trust. So how do philosophers problem, uh, solve the problem uh, of directing trust at technologies? As many of you uh, know, uh, scholars, instead of uh, uh, direct trust at technologies, they reduce issues of trust in technologies to issues of trust in the people and institutions and corporations and so on that relate to the technologies, um, whether they are engineers, designers, auditors, maintainers, and so on. So, and this is basically the anthropocentric view of trust. And this view describes several very different approaches to trust, but all commonly share two features. A, not ascribing human agency to technologies. B, referring, referring to um, humans and institutions behind the technologies in matters regarding trust and responsibility. Now, that's the essence of the uh, uh, view in social epistemology. And this, is, uh, this explanation is why I call it the anthropocentric view of trust. It's it also um, been labeled by others very differently, such as uh, I noticed in uh, Philip uh, Nichols' uh, latest paper, uh, the reductive view. And I know a paper a decade ago by uh, Mark Weckelberg as indirect trust, and actually uh, rather Simone and Wong um, refer to it as the human-centered human terminology from philosophical account. And I called it differently. I called it the humans behind the machines view uh, uh, in the dissertation that I submitted. So basically, whatever the name is, it's a family of views that point out that the concept of trust is problematic or even not suitable for describing direct trust in technological artifacts, AI included. Okay, so let's go from, from this to uh, criticizing the, the concept of trust with the AI. I'll go through four criticisms and conclude with the fifth. Joanna Bryson has a dual argument against trust, trusting AI. The first is that trust relations can only exist among peers, which AIs and humans are not. The second argument she goes against claims or common claims that accountability is impossible to trace and maintain. She goes against all those arguments about the nature of machine learning, that the system is complex and that is autonomous. These are not reasons to claim that accountability is impossible to trace. Her second argument is that accountability can be traced to humans. So there is actually just no need 
to trust AIs. Second uh, criticism. Margit Sutrop builds upon Bryson's analysis. She criticizes HLEC's guidelines for ignoring the philosophical literature distinction between trust and reliance. Building upon this literature, she argues that reliance is a one-way communication process and that trusting is a two-way communication process. In the process of trusting, the trustee expresses competence, goodwill, and, and um, commitment to what is expected while the trustor has a desire that their trustee would be trustworthy. So that's compatible with uh, what we call the responsiveness theories of trust. Under such an analysis, the argument goes, trust is actually a social relations that involves social cognition, a two-way communication process. When we speak about AI, we rely on it to function well, and that reliance is actually a one-way communication process. Therefore, our attitude toward AI is not trustworthy, but reliable. Perhaps the most encompassing conceptual analysis of the concept comes from Mark Ryan. He distinguishes between effective and normative accounts of trust and rational accounts of trust to argue that it is problematic to associate human moral activities with AI. So an effective account of trust is characterized by having the trust or believe uh, in the trustee's goodwill and expect that that trustee will be motivated by uh, this affection. The fact is that AI is not able to be motivated by goodwill and the expectation that someone is counting on it, right? It doesn't have emotions that require to meet the affective account of uh, trust. In the normative account of trust, the trust or expectations are directed not only in what, on what the trustee will do, but also on what they should do. From the side of the trustee, it entails a motivation to be morally responsible for their actions, a normative commitment. In this case too, AI is not capable of being morally responsible for its own actions. These are responsiveness theories of trust. Lastly, and as opposed to it, there's the uh, rational account of trust where the, the truster um, uh, rationally calculates whether to trust the trustee. This account of trust is simply a matter of a one-sided prediction uh, rather than the consequence of a two-way relationship as, as Setrup uh, noticed. It does not require goodwill or normative commitment, only mere calculations. Therefore, this account of trust, and I quote, should not be uh, called trust at all as it is a form of reliance. So the bottom line conclusion is that proponents of AI ethics should abandon the trustworthy AI paradigm as it is too fraught with uh, problems, replacing it with reliable AI approach. Fourth criticism, underlying the examination of Ryder, Simone and Wong, uh, uh, again is the concept itself. And their examination uh, rejects the rational accounts of trust and uh, adopt the account that attributes motivation to the trustee. They recognize trustworthy AI as a socio-technical system with humans, institutions, and AI. And that's an important point to make. They identify four different epistemic and moral difficulties for attaining AI, trustworthy AI. They show how each um, of these difficulties can be actually met uh, to achieve the trustworthy AI. However, they are skeptical about, and let me quote again, recent efforts to sell trustworthy AI 
as a ready-made label or brand. The moral requirement of the account of trust that they adopt can only be met by cultivating what they call a trustworthy AI culture. In such a culture, it's not only about the safety and reliability of the product, but also about involving the, the public. They argue that ultimately, trust should only be extended to the democratic and political culture. So you can see that the target objects of trust is the people in institutions who make up the culture surrounding AIs. The last section of the criticism part asks, so what? What will happen if to the discontentment of philosophers and AI ethicists, the rest of the world will continue to characterize AI as trustworthy? As Ryan and others point out, we risk anthropomorphizing AIs. However, what exactly the risk of anthropomorphizing AI actually means? When we anthropomorphize AI-based technologies, we often assign them with moral status. It's true when we deal with um, interpersonal robots or, or, or uh, digital assistants, but also true on a larger scale. When we assign an AI system with human-like or better saying um, institution-like characteristics, we risk falsely attributing it with a moral character that it is incapable of having. In terms of trust in both forms of anthropomorphism, both the individual and social, the risk is trusting the wrong object, a non-moral agent. It's wrong because a proper object of trust must be either morally responsible for their actions or have a goodwill toward the trust though. So when we misplace trust, we falsely attribute responsibility to non-moral agents. And by doing so, social structures which regard liability and accountability and responsibility are altered. Accordingly, resulting in a failure to assign moral and legal uh, scrutiny. Okay, so what's next? Some of the scholars I reviewed their criticism, such as Setrup and Ryan, but also others, called to shift our paradigm from trustworthy AI to reliable AI. It's easy to agree, and I indeed agree. However, as I showed in the first slide, we're now in a peak interest in the concept of trustworthy AI. I argue that the concept have already become largely used and have been passed, we, we passed the stage of principles and guidelines, now expecting regulations and legislations. Basically the larger AI community will probably continue to use this term. So despite what we think of it. So this is a battle in, in a way that is already lost. Instead, or in parallel, what I suggest is that Trust scholars can also focus on distrust. Distrust, as some authors suggest, plays an important um, social role. It points to social ills. Emphasis on the pheno on phenomena of distrust can uncover social structure, um, social structural um, uh, injustice. And as an example, think about the concept of distrust in 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 the in uh, and the concentration uh, of power in the AI market or the exploitive use of AI by some corporations. So by focusing on this trust, it's possible to indicate shifts in power, criticize it and advance social negotiations. So the concept of distrust has a large social value. Additionally, 
stressing the importance of forming trust between citizens and those who influence AIs or the political and, and democratic culture of it, as Ryder Simon and Wong suggested. Uh, the mission that we should focus more, and as an example, we can uh, show that amplifying the voices of communities that were systematically excluded from shaping AIs lead to trust relations, uh, both as expectations, dependence, goodwill, and fulfilling commitments. Ultimately, and this is uh, my conclusion, AI ethics is about social justice, it's about power, uh, as such, it's about activism. Similarly, in many cases, institutions and those who impact AIs um, influence social power dynamics while assuming or asking for our trust. So in this respect, the concept of trust is about social justice, power, and activism too. So scholars are often community-driven and social justice-oriented. And as, social, uh, as scholarly activists, they can, for example, reveal power relations or challenge unfair status quo and suggest democratic ways to form trust. And I think, or I hope that that's what's next. And thank you. Okay. Can I ask you a question, Ori? Please do, yes. Because in, in the end, I think you made this very interesting connection between um, AI ethics and, and um, more kind of a data justice uh, perspective. And um, I was uh, uh, wondering if you already see um, examples of that, like how does that take shape? in academia or in practice, what are for you kind of the, the, the persons or groups or, or things you're looking at? So I think it has three different answers. So the first one is obviously um, scholars continue to pursue and criticize uh, what's going on in the, in, the, in, in the legal and technical world of AI and bring to that issues from, from ethics. Um, the second answer is that public, like that scholars should be more publicly involved, like uh, write opinion pieces or, 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 or make their voices heard because they're more often are much more critical than uh, corporations and, and or, or, or even institutions, even, even if those institutions uh, mean very well. And the last uh, part of the answer is that there are some really, um, there are some groups forming, uh, a few groups forming uh, that highlight uh, activism in ethics of AI. And they're quite diverse. Uh, so they, are, they can be from originated for marginalized voices, such as black, uh, uh, and AI ethics or, or feminism and AI or women in AI ethics and, and, and groups like that, quite a few, or the uh, radical AI network. Um, so these are like more socially, uh, social justice oriented groups. And of course there are professional uh, uh, bodies or, or professional nonprofits 
that we as scholars can join, such as um, for humanity or all tech is human, and we can write public facing reports or, or, or participate in legislation processes. So we have an active role in changing how things happen. Thank you for your talk. Um, so, I guess I'm a, a little confused. I mean, so so I, I I like where you go in the end, right? So, so AI ethics is about sort of social justice and power and institutions, and this is the kind of stuff we ought to be talking about. And I kind of agree with that. Um, but you spent a lot of time getting there, talking, you know, so arguing that uh, instead of trust, we should talk about reliability and. Um, so I, I'm wondering, like, do you do you need that to get to where you went? I mean, could we just kind of say, Meh, I'm okay talking about, you know, trusting technologies. It doesn't bother me. Um, and uh, but if you really want to tell me I should be talking about reliability, uh, okay, whatever. Um, but still, we get to where we could still get to where you wanted to go independently of that, right? Or not? No, you know what? It's a, it's a great question because when when I went into the literature about trust and technology and, and really invested a lot a lot for myself in it, yeah. And no, I I seriously have reasons to believe that that it's wrong to call it trustworthy AI. It is conceptual nonsense. It is it it is a misnomer. It it's. It's a terrible, it's a terrible concept, and it has implications, real-world implications, because, because um, if we trust the AI, we don't trust those who we really need to trust. That is assigning them with legal responsibility. Like, let's talk practically, and and I'm disappointed, and I have nothing to do because the AI community is so much larger than trust scholars or AI ethicists. It's it's this concept is probably going to be used. So we as trust scholars, although we deal with AI ethics, we, we can concentrate on, not on how we call this paradigm, if we call it reliable AI or trustworthy AI, we can um, uh, utilize what we know about trust and distrust on these socio-technical vast systems of uh, AI. Judith, please. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite a, pretty much a follow-up on what Justin said, because I was puzzled about the same thing, actually. On the one hand, because th there seem to be two moves in there. One is to say, well, let's not talk about trustworthiness, but merely about reliance. But the other is saying, well, actually, we shouldn't talk about ethics, broadly speaking, but also about social just justice and participation. Now, my challenge would be, if you reduce it to just talking about reliance and reliability, you're demanding less than trustworthy AI, not more, right? Basically, because you just say all these other issues such as fairness and, you know, they don't matter. So if you say, let's talk only about trustworthy and reliability, you may factor in this ontological challenge on whether we can trust actors or not, right? But on the price of not having to settle these demands that are more socio-technical. So, right, I mean, so basically 
the route that we were taking were to say, well, we take it serious, but we clarify what the implications were if you want to take it serious, because then you can't look only at the people, but you must uh, at the machines only, but you must entail the people. But then you can set these demands, which are stricter if you just wanted to focus on reliance. So my question is, uh, Actually, are you fine then with saying, so how do you link this, right? The, the one demand for saying we want to focus on social justice, but we should only talk about reliance and reliability. You know what? Um, now, I, I understand the call to shift from trustworthy AI to reliable AI. And I agree as long as we're speaking about the AI, the, the, the software and hardware that we refer to as AI, that's, it can't, to my opinion, it can't be trustworthy. If we discuss about the, the, the whole socio-technical system that uh, you call uh, uh, trustworthy AI and others call trustworthy AI, then I'll be fine with, with this terminology, but still, I wouldn't be quiet about, let's just use it, uh, uh, because it does hide something that for us it's quite obvious, but for others it's not. And I think that part of it is because AI ethics, uh, as others discuss about it, is whether, uh, for example, conversational AI is sentient and it is, con con is a conscious, or whether uh, we have a trolley problem with, uh, with autonomous vehicle. And that shifts us again um, from discussing all those social issues that hide when we want to discuss about the whole uh, uh, socio-technical system as you refer to it. Um, so I'm fine only if we discuss the whole system, but if we discuss merely the technology, I'm not fine with it. Is this now the open discussion? Because then I think it's, you know, I was just asking if it's the open discussion, then then I may follow up because otherwise, uh, but but then, you know, and that's not, not, not targeted only at your talk, but more generally, like, isn't then the problem, not the notion of trustworthy AI, but the notion of AI to begin with, right? I mean, the whole anthropomorphism doesn't come in when we're talking about trustworthy AI. It is in the very concept of AI and this whole misnomer that what we're talking about statistical data analysis it has nothing to do with intelligence, right? It's just statistics. So shouldn't we just stop talking about AI? I mean, there are aspects of AI research that have to do with the simulation of, you know, cognition and aspects that we should normally consider um, intelligent and human beings. So I'm not trying to neglect all this historical debates on AI, right? I'm just saying, currently we're talking about automated decision-making in many different contexts, about sophisticated, more or less sophisticated forms of data analysis. Many of these issues have nothing whatsoever to do with AI and the whole anthropomorphism and entro, you know, um, all these sentiment, whatever, right, has more to do with the notion of AI. And then you're targeting. So the question is, are you targeting the wrong, um, um, the wrong issue by, by focusing on the trustworthiness rather than on the AI as an issue? I'm not talking only about you, but, you know, more general comment. Yeah, no, de definitely, I, I I agree, and it should be a trustworthy in intelligence. Or so, yeah, it's it's all a, it's all a mis one big misnomer. Uh, if we want to uh, be uh, faithful to the philosophical principles underlying uh, social epistemology, um, ha having said that, I am worried. You know, it's it's following uh, Esther's talk. 
I am worried that what's on stake here now, currently, is that corporations and 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 legislators will diffuse, will you know, responsibility will be diffused. It wouldn't be. Uh, we wouldn't know who exactly to hold responsible, whether it's an, uh, an institution or, or a person that holds a position. And that's, that's my worry. And this is why I tackled, like I continued the tradition that uh, criticizes the notion of trustworthy uh, AI uh, in this respect. So it's like choosing, choosing the, the right battle that we scholars want to have, if that answers the question. Okay, so um, let's conclude this uh, workshop. Uh, if any of you want to say something, this is the good time. And so let me just switch to a gallery view. And I thank everyone who is watching it uh, and participated through YouTube's channel. And I thank all of you for your wonderful presentations and the interesting discussions and we hope that uh, uh, everything will turn out to be great with everything that's going on in this world today. So thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us.